All right, the chair has called the meeting to order. If you could please rise for the Pledge of Allegiance. One nation, under God, indivisible, liberty and justice for all. Vice President Carter Oberstone, I'd like to take roll. Please. Commissioner Walker. Present. Commissioner Benedicto. Present. Commissioner Yanez. Present. Commissioner Byrne. Here. Uh, Commissioner Yee is in route, and Vice President Carter Overstone, you have a quorum. Also here with us tonight, we have Chief William Scott, who is appearing virtually, as well as Assistant Chief David Lazar and Executive Director Paul Henderson from the Department of Police Accountability. Great, welcome everyone. Um, for members of the public, just want to advise on a couple changes to the agenda. So, item five, the MOU with the District Attorney's Office is going to be taken off the agenda today. Um, because there isn't yet a revised version for the public and the commission to consider, and the, the chief will give an update on the status of the negotiations during his chief's report. Um, chief Scott will be joining us remotely for a portion of today's meeting, and so we're going to take a couple of items out of order um, that Chief Scott's going to speak on um, so that he can speak on them first because he is on the East Coast. Um, so with that, we are going to start with item number six, please. Line item six, discussion of deadlines per DGO 3.01 written communication system for revision of DGO 8.10 guidelines of First Amendment activity, 6.18 warrant arrests, and 9.03 mandatory blood test for drivers under the influence at the request of the commission. Discussion. Great, thank you. So um, I asked for this item to be placed on the agenda a few weeks ago and just wanted to provide some background and context on this issue. So um, it was a few months ago now that um, Director Henderson highlighted for the commission that there were 26 DGOs that um, had been started the revision process but had been stalled despite the department having received uh, recommendations from DPA. Um, in response to that, and I should say some of, these, some of these DGOs were, most were stalled for over a year, some even over two years. Um, in response to that, the commission took a few steps. First, President Elias assigned to each commissioner each one of these DGOs such, so that each commissioner had personal responsibility to shepherd the DGO through the revision process and ensure that timelines were being met. Secondly, um, last year, DGO 3.01 became effective. And what DGO 3.01 does is that it, it, sets, it sets out an explicit step-by-step -step process for how DGOs are to be revised. It sets strict timelines for each step along the process. Now, while the timelines are strict, they are not completely inflexible. The DGO does allow for either DPA or the department to seek an extension of time if they feel they're not able to meet a deadline and they just have to describe, explain why there's good cause um, to receive an extension. Uh, and the commission then decides whether or not to grant that extension. Um, I called this meeting because it appeared that certain deadlines were not being met for DGO, the revision of DGO 810, First Amendment surveillance activities. Um, and it appeared also that the department did not 
seek an extension of time as is required under 3.01. Back when we had our original meeting many months ago to discuss the 26 stall DGOs, many of us were, including myself, many of us were very critical of Chief Scott for the, the unexplained delay. Um, but I also said back then, and I still believe it very much now, that the commission was just as much at fault because it's ultimately our responsibility as the oversight body to ensure that policy revision is happening on time. And so when we have instances, as in, as in the case of DGO 810, uh, where deadlines are not being met, it's the commission's responsibility to inquire into why that is, especially when there's, there's been no request or no timely request for an extension of time. Um, and then I should also say, in addition to 810, Commissioner Benedicto had, I think, similar issues and asked for some other DGOs to also be placed on the agenda. So we'll have an opportunity to discuss those two. Um, if it's all right, Commissioner, I'll start with 810 and then you can take it away. All right. Um, Sergeant, could you put the, uh, the graphic up? All right, so um, I just wanted to, so as part of this inquiry into DGO 810, I asked for the department and DPA to provide the commission with the relevant emails uh, that took place between, between them as it relates to the revision of the DGO. And this just, this just outlines the timeline of those emails. So on October 27th, DPA requested certain documents from the department that it needed to uh, make its phase one recommendation grid. Um, there was no response as far as I can tell to that email. On November 3rd, DPA sent the department its phase one recommendation grid. That act under 3.01 triggered a December 6th deadline for the department to respond to that recommendation grid. Um, on November 22nd, uh, there was a follow-up email from DPA because it had not received any response to this point. Um, December 6th came and went with no response from the department. On December 8th, three things happened. DPA emailed the, re the department requesting an update in light of the expired deadline. Uh, Director Kaywood left a voicemail with um, DC Vaswani regarding the deadline. Um, and then DC Vaswani responded via email that he was out on vacation, but he would be back December 12th. On December 12th, Director Kay Wood and DC Vaswani spoke via phone. Um, on December 14th, I texted Chief Scott asking what the deal was with the elapsed deadlines. And then on that same day, um, oh, this is a, this is, um, I accidentally sent an old version of this timeline, so this is slightly off. On that same day, there was an internal email. Um, both uh, DC Vaswani and Lieutenant O'Connor asked for permission to seek an extension, but the department didn't seek an actual extension until December 20th. So I just had a couple questions that I wanted to ask um, DPA and the department. So I was wondering if I could start with Ms. Kaywood. Good evening, Vice President Carter, Oberstone, and Commissioners A.C. Lazar, Chief Scott, and Director Henderson, and members of the public. Hi, Director Kaywood. <clears throat> so I just wanted to ask you some basic questions to provide context to the, the process, the DGO revision process that we're talking about. So on November 3rd, you sent a stage 
or phase one recommendation grid uh, to the department. Correct. Um, can you just explain to, to the public what, what is a recommendation grid? Sure, a recommendation grid is an Excel spreadsheet. Uh, it has four columns. The first column, uh, DPA itemizes our recommendations per, uh, pertaining to a particular DGO. The second column is the date we submitted the DGO recommendation. The third column is uh, for SFPD to respond whether they accept the recommendation or not, or whether it's partially accepted. The fourth column allows for SFPD to provide a brief description for their, uh, whether they agree with our recommendation or not. So it's a tracking device. I think it was created by uh, Aja Steves, and it was a, it's a good, it's a good way for the department and DPA to keep track of our recommendations and um, for the public to keep track as well. And if I could just, a phase one recommendation grid is under the new 3.01, is a pre-drafting uh, recommendations that DPA provides. They're often kind of general, high level, just to kind of put the department on notice of issues that we're looking into. Once we receive a draft, we uh, have the opportunity to provide a stage two recommendation grid, and that's where we go line by line through the draft DGO and provide specific recommendations. Thank you. And, and how, in this particular case, how many recommendations did DPA make? I believe it was four, and one of them was uh, a request for documents. I see. Okay. So three substantive recommendations that would require a response. Um, and what does a response to a recommendation generally look like? Um, it usually look, the department will say uh, recommendation will be included, not included, or partially included and then they'll say why. It's usually a matter of three sentences. Great, and then just in reviewing the emails, um, you sent an email on October 27th uh, and another email on November 22nd, and I didn't see a response to those emails. It, it, am I reading that right, or did you receive a response over email or, or a phone call or anything like that? I didn't receive a response via email or telephone call. Or just by any other means, you never. No, I didn't receive any response from anyone until I emailed uh, DC Baswani on his own with no one else copied, and asked um, if we could talk, and then he responded right away. At that point, that was on December eighth. Great, thank you. Um, I don't. Is is DC Baswani in the house tonight? You have uh, Acting Deputy Chief Eric Mintero. Um, Deputy Chief Viswani is on vacation. And Lieutenant O'Connor. And you have, no, just the Acting Deputy Chief Eric Mintero, responsible for the Investigations Bureau. Okay. Um, because the Commission asked, I mean, the Commission asked for DC Viswani and Lieutenant O'Connor. I don't, did we receive any communication that they wouldn't be at the hearing today? Yeah, Commissioner, I can answer that. I, I did request or ask that the person in charge be there, and uh, Deputy Chief Aswani is off, as was stated by Assistant uh, Chief Azar. So I asked Commander Ventero, is in charge while he's off, to be there to answer any questions. And is the, what's the reason why Lieutenant O'Connor wasn't able to make it? Because I want it, I want the executive sponsors who are responsible for this DGO to be here to answer for whatever question that the commission has or whatever questions comes up. 
And just so I understand, why why wasn't I or the commission apprised of this until, well, apprised of this at all? Well, I did communicate that. I didn't call you, but I did communicate I wanted to be responsible for answering these questions. So just, I, I guess I just don't understand. You did or did not communicate that Lieutenant O'Connor and D.C. Vaswani would not be here this evening? I did. I communicated it to the commission office of who would be representing the department on this issue. Okay. I, I guess we can address this a different time, but... You know, I, I did ask for two specific people to be here, just picking the people who seem to have the most intimate involvement based on the emails. And I think that, you know, the, the least we could get is a response saying, you know, why those people won't be available, you know, at, at some point in advance. I, I certainly never saw that, Chief, and we've, you know, we've had numerous conversations between the time I made that request in this hearing, and, and you never raised it. I communicated that last week that the deputy chief or whoever is acting for the deputy chiefs will be responsible for answering the questions. They are the ones ultimately responsible, and they're the executive responses. So I would like them to be here to answer the questions. All right, understood. We'll just we'll move ahead with uh, with what we've got today. Okay, thank you so much, um, Director Kaywood. Thank you. I, I did have questions for the department, so. All good. Hi, good evening. I'm sorry, could you, uh, I didn't catch, um, I didn't catch your name when, when the chief said it. Could you just. Okay. I will start. Um, first of all, I apologize for being a little late. And um, I am here on behalf of DC Viswani to um, speak on 8.10. Um, so I'll just start. Um, good evening, Vice President Carter Oberstone, Commissioners, Assistant Chief Lazar, Chief Scott, Executive Director Henderson, members of the public. My name is Commander Eric Vintero, and I am the um, acting, acting Deputy Chief of the Investigations Bureau. Uh, DC Viswani is a uh, not here this week. So I'm gonna provide an update on the status of General Order 8.10, Guidelines for First Amendment Activities. But before I do, I'm gonna give a quick overview of the Special Investigations Division as this is the unit in which our subject matter expert is the general, or uh, for this general order. Excuse um, me, Commander, I'm yes. sorry to interrupt. I, I, are you presenting on the next agenda item where the department's giving a description of, of 8.10 and 3.01? Yes. Okay. So I think that's what you're about to do is germane to the next agenda item. For this agenda item, I just had a few specific questions about what happened in this particular case, and then I think you'll have your, an opportunity to discuss the process and the DGO as you were about to for, the, for item number seven on the agenda today, okay. the next item up. So could you just explain what your roles and responsibilities are as it relates to DGO 810? So our roles and responsibilities, uh, as the executive um, sponsor of this executive sponsor is DC Viswani. So I'm filling in for him. The subject matter expert is David O'Connor. And our job is to revise this DGO 
and get community input, obviously from all of our partners, including the DPA, and present this as outlined in 3.01. And as it relates to the actual revision of the DGO, what is your role, if, if any? Well, I fill in for DC Viswani in his absence. So um, if these, these DGOs aren't being um, meeting guidelines or timelines, then ultimately that, that would be on me um, as the commander of investigations and filling in as a DC of investigations. So I do, I do have a lot of okay. mitigating circumstances that I would like to Sure, and I think that item number seven will give you op ample opportunity to discuss them, and, and hopefully we'll get to some of those for this item as well. So let me just ask you, um, do you know why nobody responded to Director Kaywood's emails on October 27th and November 22nd? I can't, I can't speak on that. I do not know. Okay. Um, I'm just looking at my notes. You were on the October 27th email. I mean, again, this is why I asked for D.C. Vaswani and Lieutenant O'Connor to be here. Um, how, many, how, much, how many hours, in your estimation, would it take to respond to, three, uh, to the three substantive recommendations that DPA made in this case? I don't want to guess on that. I do know 8.01 is, is very complex DGO. It has a lot to do with First Amendment activity, and you know, there's a lot of um, consultation with our legal counsel on that, so I don't know how many hours it would take. Are you familiar w with the, the recommendations that DPA sent over for this DGO, the specific ones? I have not seen them, no. Okay, so, okay. I think what needs to happen here is we need to reschedule this because the department has decided to send someone who's not familiar with the particulars of this case. Um, I have to say I'm really disappointed, you know. Okay. I'm really disappointed, Chief. We've, we, we had many conversations between the time I asked for two specific individuals to come make a presentation, and there was ample time for you to say, someone's out on vacation, or hey, I don't think that that's the right person, can we have a discussion about it? We even had a phone call about this specific agenda item, um, and you didn't raise this, and now I'm finding out literally live at the meeting, and you've sent someone who, who's not even familiar with the recommendations that were made in this in this for this particular DGO, and that's the entire subject of this agenda item. So, yeah, may, may, I, speak, may I speak? Please, yeah, please. Thank you, thank you. Uh, um, so I can answer your questions about the responsiveness or not or the of the email. The bottom line is we were not responsive. Uh, there's no excuse for it. It doesn't take a whole lot of time to send an email. It doesn't take a whole lot of time to answer two or three questions. We just did not hit the mark at all on that issue. I've looked at all the records. I've looked at all the crimes. I've asked the questions internally, and we just have to own up that we were not responsive. And it really doesn't matter how many wait ask the question, the answer is going to be the same. When it comes to that issue, we were not responsive. Now, there are mitigating factors that if we get to the next phase of this discussion that we can talk about, but it still doesn't negate the fact. It's the same question we asked internally. What, how long does it take to answer anything? And, you know, and we were not responsive. So no matter who answers the question, we've, we've grilled 
folks internally on this issue. And we understand where our shortcomings are, and this is one of them. We have to answer and be responsive to these types of communications. And we weren't on the one just Okay, Chief, thanks. I appreciate your candor on that. Um, at the same time, I asked for two specific people to be here today so that we could have a discussion about what actually happened. And I was given absolutely zero notice that the department had apparently already decided that those two people would not be available. And again, I'm extremely disappointed that the commission's time is being wasted, the public's time is being wasted in this way. Um, my inclination now is to take these two items off. We'll reschedule them at a time that DC Vaswani and Lieutenant O'Connor can be available and um, we'll, we'll find a time that, that works for everyone. Um, Commissioner, can I, can I uh, just make uh, one ask? Of course. Okay. There's three DGOs here. The other two executive sponsors are here. And as far as the deputy chief and the lieutenant, honestly, the questions that you are asking, I can answer those. I've dug into this enough to answer those questions. And I'll just say this as well. One of the things that we have to have in this department is accountability at all levels, including myself. And I ask those deputy chiefs, or in the case of the commanders, because they are responsible for making sure these move. Just like I am responsible, ultimately. I can answer your questions. If the case is that you want to bring the lieutenant or the subject matter expert in here, really what we're trying to get away from is having the subject matter expert pulled in all different directions because that's part of our problem. And that's why we have executive sponsors to keep the executive functions of this, these DGOs moving. And one of the things that, I, that I'd like to do, if I could ask for this commission's support on this, is have the executive sponsors answer up for the people uh, that they're responsible for, just like I have to answer up for the entire department. So that is why I made the decision. Really, that's how we're trying to be structured. Um, so the subject matter experts, who all have operational jobs, by the way, can actually do what they do and then have the accountability. Everybody needs to be held accountable. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is we need to have the executives on, the, on these meetings because they are ultimately are responsible. And some of what we've seen reflecting on some of the misbets, um, that it's, it's, we have mistakes at all levels. Great. Thank you, so, Chief. Well, so I, I, I understand that Commissioner Benedicto had two DGOs he wanted to address. He didn't ask for specific individuals to be present for them. So I think since this is agendized, if Commissioner Benedicto wants to proceed with the DGOs, the delays in the DGOs he wanted to address, we can do that. Um, item seven is off the agenda, and we will um, reschedule um, this agenda item as it relates to DGO 810 at a time that Lieutenant O'Connor and DC Vaswani can be available for the commission to answer questions. Um, so, Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you, Vice President Carter Oberstone. Um, I'd like to call Ms. Kaywood back to talk a little bit about, um, let's start with DGO 9.03. Good evening. Good evening, uh, Ms. Kaywood. Um, so, DGO 9.03 concerns mandatory blood tests for drivers under the influence, is that correct? Correct. And I believe that's... Um, in September, October of 2022, I started the clock on DJO 9.03. Is that correct? 
I don't recall that, well, this 9.03 was one uh, on our list of languishing DGOs. Yeah. And if I could just give a quick background. Yes, please do. Uh, in 2021, on June 2nd, 2021, DPA sent a recommendation grid to the department and we haven't heard back since that time. So I listed it on uh, one of the DGOs that had fallen off on, you didn't start the clock because this is under the old 3.01, but on September 27th, we all had a meeting uh, with you, written directives and me, and we came, uh, you requested a meeting with the appropriate DC, the subject matter expert written directives and me, uh, and that meeting was never scheduled. And then it looks like you followed up to repeat that request for a meeting on January 10th. Correct. Is that correct? Yeah. And did you receive a response to that? I, I don't recall. I don't think so. Okay. Is someone here from the department on 9.03? Yes. Good evening, commissioners. Uh, I'm Daniel Perea. I'm the deputy chief from the Special Operations Bureau. I'm the executive sponsor for 9.03. Right. Thanks, Chief Perea. Um, did you receive uh, Ms. Kaywood's... Uh, request for my request for a meeting with yourself a subject matter expert and written directives in October of 2022 I did not I when I and the reason I didn't receive it is that I was out I was out of the office uh, during that period and I've gone over the the cron that was provided to me of all the email communication and I will say preemptively that I know that you and I have have met and spoken at different events so you might know a little bit about me um, but I am Absolutely committed to being responsive to requests for, for meetings, for conversations, for whatever is necessary to take care of these priorities and to meet deadlines. So in my absence, there was uh, a commander who was in place as the acting deputy chief who was responsible for getting all this to happen and not to say too much or go too far. I'll end my response with this. My understanding is that there was Finally, maybe not as quickly as it should have been, but there was a meeting calendared with you over, these, over the concerns you had. And I don't, I was told that meeting was subsequently, well, it hasn't happened yet, but it was calendared. Okay. Was there a meeting, I don't recall a meeting being calendared on this issue. Um, do you have a date as when that was set for, but it didn't happen? Like, was it rescheduled? It was, it was early. Well, it, I was told it was early in January, but the process, my, my piece or my position in this process is I get emails and I get meeting invitations and I show up and I click yes. And I, I, I'm present for all those meetings. But if you, if the commission or you would like me to take responsibility for calendaring those meetings directly. I can give you all my contact information, and I, I will take that, not to suggest that it's not being done, but, you know, as the executive sponsor, I'm happy to step in and do that because that's what I do with the subject matter expert and the people beneath me. Excuse me. I misspoke. The people that I work with that are responsible for the work to say, what do you need? What can I do to help you? So I'm happy to do the same, and I don't mean that uh, in any way to besmirch what's being done by the written directives unit because... Um, they're keeping me pretty well informed as far as I, I can tell. Okay. Um, on this then, uh, uh, Ms. K, what if I could trouble you to send uh, a, an email communication to the group that you've been corresponding with, which I believe should include uh, Deputy Chief Perea, and um, to request a meeting, and we'll, and we'll schedule that. Mayor Kern. Yes. Thank you, Deputy Chief.
Um, I, I do want to, I do recall in recent weeks, I did have a discussion with um, Lieutenant Altoffer who um, updated me on 9.03. He said that they were waiting for 9.03, waiting on 9.03 and um, they wanted to pass or finish 5.16, the search warrant DGO, because there was some overlap. I will note that the overlap is really small. Um, so I, it would have been great to have just had that, been able to review the whole DGO and just put a pin in the part that pertains to 516. But I do recall in recent weeks, written directives did update me orally. That's that's very helpful. Thank you, Ms. Kaywood. And, and like Vice President Carter Oberstone said, th you know, this is meant to be uh, a conversation. Th you know, the, three, the, the new 3.01 procedure is new for the commission, for the department, and DPA, and it's going to be, uh, you know, there are areas where where we'll, where where the commission is you know is the is the reason for delay, and we want to make sure that we're having this discussion and it's, it's transparent and in front of the public. And I will say, I, and I had a discussion with AC Lazar. I think a lot of our, our problems stem from poor communication rather than actual disagreement. So the extent I appreciate this hearing because the extent to which we can open the channels of communications, I think a lot of the you know conflict will will take care of itself so absolutely I, I think that's exactly i think that's exactly right that it's communication um let's move on to dgo 6.18 on warrant under us oh yes uh chief sorry if i may commissioner yes i, I don't think that's Thank my you. card i know you have my email contact information um so in trying to stay abreast and keep update with to what's going on so uh our one of our legal counsel uh Kara lacy mm -hmm. was working with the sme about this issue of uh of the search warrant okay and ryan cow who's also an attorney uh, formerly of the da's office who i was told was an expert when it came to dui uh litigation cases prosecution is now has now stepped in and i was told that um that their research and their final uh, version will be ready on march 10th okay so that's that's an update i can provide you now so that's a draft will be provided to DPA on March 10th of, of for 9.03. Yes, sir. Okay. That's my understanding. Okay. That's I'm going to give my card to Stacy Sergeant Youngblood. Can you give that to Commissioner? I know you, you all have. Thank you. I have your contact but... information. Chief. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. All right, uh, Ms. Kaywood, would you discuss uh, DJO 6.18, please? Uh, DGO 6.18 is uh, warrant arrests. Uh, our records show, and this was before my time as policy director, that DPA submitted a recommendation grid on November 17th, 2020. Um, on March 2nd, 2021, the department accepted our recommendations. Uh, we got a draft of this DGO on 6.14 in 20, uh, 2021, and we liked the draft, and then it sort of fell off. Um, on October 27th of last year, uh, Commissioner, you ordered the department to provide DPA with a draft by November 28th, 2022. Um, I gave the department, I think, six weeks after it, nobody ever met that deadline or reached out to me to explain why the deadline couldn't be met or to ask for more time. And I, I will note that that date was selected with joint uh, joint agreement with the department and DPA. So again, it's sort of the lack of communication that gets frustrating. And that's why we reach out to the commission. Had someone just talked to me about whatever barriers they were facing, I'm sure we could have just negotiated a new date and let you know. Um, I have received 
the draft. It's excellent. We have um, one one remaining issue that we'd like to discuss with uh, DC O'Sullivan and Kara Lacey and Captain Harvey, who worked on this DGO. Um, and I, I think we can resolve it pretty quickly. It's a great DGO. Great. Yes, as I recall, you received the drafts on February 1st after I asked Chief Scott about it at commission, uh, Chief Report exactly. last week, right? Right. Okay. Um, is, DCO, uh, is DCO Sullivan the, here, oh, there he is. Good evening. Good evening, Deputy Chief. Um, is there, I mean, the same question that I think Vice President Carter Oberson was going to ask DC if it's one, is there a reason that the, that 1128 deadline was missed? Yeah, that's my responsibility. It was my oversight, and I take responsibility for it. Um, I did not have any discussion about the concerns of DPA. Had I been aware of that, I'd be more than happy to discuss it with them. Subsequently, it was submitted, and I received a favorable response, as was stated previously. Uh, there was an ask for a follow-up discussion, and that will occur the week of February 20th. I'm sorry, which week is the follow-up discussion? The week of February 20th. Okay, thank you. Then it sounds like six weeks after that deadline was met, there was a follow-up communication that was also not replied to. Is that correct? I'm unaware of that. Okay. And the department, to your knowledge, didn't seek an extension to, to the deadline that I'd set either, correct? That's correct. Is there a reason that an extension wasn't sought? I'm so, Is there a reason that the department didn't seek an extension of that November 28th deadline? I, I would again say that's just my responsibility. Okay. Thank you, Chief. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that a draft was provided, and, and substantively from Dr. Kibbutt, I'm glad to hear that, that it's a positive draft. Um, and I think just th this gets to the overarching theme that it is, it is an issue of communication. There's a process in 3.01 for requesting extensions. Um, and I would hope that, uh, you know, I, I'm glad that we've had this discussion. I'm glad that, that for the candor of, the, of Chief Scott and of the Deputy Chiefs who have taken their responsibility. And, you know, there are over a dozen more uh, DGOs that the various commissioners have assigned. And I, I would hope that these three won't be exemplary of what we're seeing going forward. And that if I know there are some deadlines coming up uh, for at least for some of my DJOs, if the department's not going to meet those, I would really hope the department would seek, uh, make a written uh, request for extensions. Um, and so, so that the commission can consider them under 3.01. Thank you. Commissioner, mm -hmm. okay, I, I just wanted to add one thing I wanted to mention. That's if fine. If it's all right. And I apologize, I'll be brief. No problem. So I just, I just want everyone on the commission to know, and you, because I have some of the uh, DGOs that, that have been, uh, that you are responsible for as well. Uh, again, um, we have a plan. The chief has made it very clear, you know, what the priorities are about this. Um, we all live with deadlines. You know, the folks that work for me have deadlines that we all have to meet. So they're important to all of us. We're receiving constant updates from the written uh, director's unit. Uh, about deadlines, SMEs, where all of the different orders are uh, in place. And I can say uh, for myself, and I would imagine for the other deputy chiefs as well, that the majority of what I have uh, is right on track or has been submitted. And, and we're also very well aware of 3.01 and the ability to ask for an extension, which we will do if, if we get there. We'll, we'll ask for permission for that. Thanks. I mean, I'll, I'll also note that I, I do want to recognize, uh, as I think all, all the commissioners do, that we are in a period of 
of, ex of extraordinarily rapid development of policies of this department. That I, I, I mentioned last week when he passed it, Joe, that when looking back at the Blue Ribbon Report, there was a two-year period where five DGOs were passed. And so we appreciate that there is a lot more activity, uh, and I think that's, that's very positive, and that, we're, that these, these growing pains are perhaps an inevitability, and our goal as a commission is to make sure that the members of the public are apprised of them and that we're dealing with them and the department is complying with its obligations under 3.01 because as the oversight body of this department, we have a responsibility to do that too. But I, I do want to note that it does not go unrecognized how much progress and how much work has been made on, on these DGOs. And that, as Director Kaywood said, that the substance of the DGOs themselves are not coming out with significant disagreement. It's just a matter of communication. And I uh, look forward to that being, being resolved. I appreciate that. And I, and I would be remiss if I didn't pass your uh, compliment and, and offer my own to the SMEs that we have. Um, the, these folks are absolutely the right people. They are subject matter experts. And in addition to the responsibilities that they have, like the officer that has 9.03, Crispin Jones, is, uh, is, is absolutely an uh, excellent police officer, everything you would want an expert in this field and also responsible for, in addition to this policy piece, to the everyday work of being assigned to the solos, right, to the motorcycle company and investigating, you know, complex uh, collisions that have either serious injury or, or that are fatalities. So, and then just as the DCs, I think we're trying to walk a fine line too between being respectful of that and not putting undue pressure on them, but trying to figure out a way to get them what they need so that they can be successful and move this forward because they are the experts. Thank you. Thank you. AC Lazar. I'm learning the system up here. Uh, commissioners, I just want to add that I know uh, Chief Scott mentioned about what his role has been and the deputy chiefs. I have the privilege of working with the deputy chiefs as the assistant chief, and um, I'm paying close attention as well now. We put a system in place within the last week. Captain Toomer's here uh, to help us keep on track. The dates are on my desk. I look at them every day. So to your point about 3.01 being new and we have to really have strategies to remember our due dates, I'm even involved now to make sure that everyone's doing what they're supposed to be doing. And uh, I can tell you that everyone's committed to doing what we're supposed to do. That's great. Thank you, Chief Lazar. And I think we're all heartened to hear that the department's taken steps to um, ensure that we stay on track going forward. And as Commissioner Benedicto said, there's certainly a lot of DGOs being um, revised, and um, we understand that that places a, a serious burden on written directives and the SMEs and others involved in the revision process. Before we move on from this agenda item, though, I do want to make a clear record for what happened today, which is, you know, I'm, I'm glad that for the DGOs that Commissioner Benedicto is overseeing that we're able to have a productive conversation and understand what happened. But for DGO 810, I requested that the two people, you know, the subject matter expert and DC Vaswani, the two people with firsthand knowledge of what was going on, um, to come to the commission hearing uh, meeting so that we could have an understanding of where the process broke down. The commission was you know, exercising its oversight powers to understand itself and to you know, unearth for the public exactly where things went off the rails as it relates to DGO 810. 
And what the department did is it unilaterally blocked those two people from coming to the commission meeting today so that the commission could not exercise its oversight authority in that way. And I just want to say how deeply concerning I find that to be and that I'm sandbagged live in a meeting by Chief Scott. Chief Scott put on my calendar a meeting to discuss this very agenda item very recently. We spoke for over 30 minutes. He never raised this issue. We have spoken and texted and emailed on a variety of other topics, and he has never raised this issue. Um, I'm just very disappointed, and I just want to emphasize how incredibly inappropriate I think that this behavior is. So with that, agenda item number seven will be taken off calendar, and we'll just re-agendize the discussion of 810 at a later time when the appropriate people are uh, available. Uh, so, Chief, um, I think we're just going to move on. I, 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 Mr. If I, if I may, just, I just also need to put on the record that Chief Laswani was scheduled to come. He took vacation, which he has a right to do. It was my decision to have him and not the subject matter expert in this inquiry. But Chief Laswani was slated to come and went on vacation. So I, I just, I, that needs to be on the record because there's no ill will about the chief taking his scheduled vacation. He has a right to do that and he elected to do that, but he was slated to come. And, I'll just, and I just want to also put on the record, part of our issue is how this department is structured. When people are off for whatever reason, the next person up has to fill that role and take responsibility for whatever the job, the task is at hand. That's part of the theme we're seeing. People were off for, for a variety of reasons, all legitimate, and things just sit. And we have to fix that immediately. And part of that is the person up needs to step up and fill in. So I do understand, but I do need to put that on the record because I think the picture you painted is not exactly accurate. Well, Chief, this is not about anyone taking vacation. No, Nobody at this commission was informed that DC Baswani would not be made available whether due to vacation or any other reason. That, that's the issue, is, is the lack of notice that individuals would not be made available. Of course, nobody has an issue with anybody taking vacation. That, that's, that's, not, that's not the issue. Um, Commissioner Walker. You know, I've, I haven't been on the commission that, that long, as many of you have, but um, I do know that this attention to the overdue DGOs has been a recent commitment on behalf of the president, um, uh, President Elias, which is very much appreciated by all of us. Um, we're all trying to get up to speed within a system that doesn't exist. And so I don't think any of us need to really take this as a personal issue. I think the message is clear, Vice President Overstone, that we take this seriously and would like a commitment from all parties to move these forward. So I want to support that with you, but I don't, I don't feel like it's intentional. And I think that what hopefully everyone hears is this is a serious issue of setting forth the, the general orders for operating our, our police force and what to do out there. It's serious. We take it seriously. Um, hopefully the chief and the department do. And I really appreciate us all shifting into prioritizing these. Um, this is how we can actually um, 
initiate reforms and work together on the issues that we're all dealing with. So that's all I want to say. Thank you, Commissioner. Um, Sergeant, can we go to public comment? At this time, the public is now welcome to make public comment regarding line item six. If you'd like to make public comment, please approach the podium or press star three. And Vice President Carter Overstone, there is no public comment. Thank you, Sergeant. Could we call item number eight? Line item eight, San Francisco Administrative Code 19B, SFPD use of non-city entity surveillance camera policy implementation update at the request of the commission. Discussion. Hello, good evening. Commissioners, Chief Scott, who's online, AC Chief Lazar, and Director Henderson. It's the first time I've seen you here in a while also. Uh, I'm Aja Steves. I work with legislation compliance and special projects with SFPD, and I'm here just to give a verbal update on where we are with the implementation of the um, non-city entity surveillance camera policy, and this was approved by ordinance through the 19B process. Uh, the 19B process prescribes the approval process where each department in the city that has any surveillance technology must publicly post it first in an inventory on their website and then uh, submit a series of documents. We call an STP and an SIR, so that's a surveillance technology policy and a surveillance um, impact report. And those have to go through several public hearings through PSAB, which is the Privacy Surveillance Advisory Board, COIT, the rules hearing through the board and then full board and then is ultimately approved by ordinance. So in this case, the police department's use of non-city entity surveillance camera ordinance went into effect November 6th, 2022. And it sunsets, well, it has a potential of sunsetting in January of 2024. This was essentially a pilot ordinance. So in January of 2024, the Board of Supervisors will review it and either renew it, renew with changes, or rescind it. So we have until, we have a full 15 months, but now about 12 months to uh, get the ball rolling and, and start to comply with this ordinance. So it's my understanding that this commission was just, uh, interested in hearing where we are with the implementation process. So we started with um, drafting a uh, bureau order. We submitted that to DPA for review. After receiving feedback from DPA, we have decided to create three different bureau orders and a unit order. So we're doing a bureau order for field operations, for special operations, for uh, investigations, and also a unit order for CED. This does not apply to the airport. The airport must comply with the airport's 19B policy for surveillance, so they're separate, a separate entity. Uh, so we are going to submit those, and then we also created a new form, which is called the SFPD Form 619, and it is how we request live monitoring. This requires officers to fill this form out, and they have to get captain rank approval or higher before they can even make the request to the non-city entity. Um, so again, they have to fill out certain criteria. The criteria is mostly required by the ordinance itself, uh, but this commission, when we presented it back, I believe, in November, added some extra criteria to put into the form which we've put in. Now, I can put the form up. I believe you have it in front of you, but I'll put it up. Can we cancel this? Can you see that okay? A little tiny. 
Um, so we have a few different versions of this. We have a fillable document. The one you see here is fillable, so if you have it on your, on your desktop, you can click into the boxes. It looks like blank spaces, but you can actually type in the responses because most of them need to be filled out with extra information. Uh, we have some demographic information that we'd like to collect on any live monitoring operation that we plan to to put out there, and all that information must go through the chain of command. That chain of command must review it, uh, and then the captain ultimately, or, or hire, must review this form and then approve it before, again, the officer, or whoever the requester is, can even go to the non-city entity to make that request. Then all of that information is compiled and sent back and will eventually go into a public quarterly report. That quarterly report will be submitted to this body here and also to the Board of Supervisors. The first quarterly report will capture January, February, and March 2023 live monitoring data, uh, including everything you see here, and uh, the census tracked data also. So where the live monitoring happened and where the tra census tract is, which includes an easy way to track the demographic data. So that's was uh, we have the bureau orders again, so three bureau orders, one unit order, and then we have a new form that will be submitted actually uh, to the department through a DN. So we'll have a department notice that goes out and tells everybody about the form. Then we have a training rollout. So we have a phase one of the training rollout. Um, we plan on starting with a training for all the captains and lieutenants and operations, since they will be the people that will um, essentially approve the form. They have to know what the form is, get familiar with it, get familiar with all of the boxes, and also uh, be aware that they can approve or deny. They're not uh, expected to approve every single request, but uh, we might do some uh, practice kind of requests through the captains and lieutenants of operations. The next is to do trainer, train the trainer classes in conjunction with the academy starting with narcotics, excuse me, burglary, and the video retrieval officers. After that, we'd like to train the rest of the investigations units, uh, and then the station plainclothes officers. So that's all phase one of the training implementation. Phase two would probably start at the beginning of Q2, so about April, where we go with the special ops, because they're also part of this, uh, patrol, and then we'd also like to do some training with IA, because this ordinance allows um, IA to use historical footage or even live monitoring for any misconduct cases as well. So um, just a little more before I accept any questions here, just want to remind you with admin code 19B, again, every city department is beholden to this particular uh, admin code. Every department has to post their surveillance technologies. Ours inventory is on our website. So if you go to our website and go to your SFPD policies, there's a box for 19B and it lists all of our technologies. We have over 40. So we have to go through this process for each uh, technology where we do an STP, an SIR, PSAB, hearings, uh, COIT hearings, the rules, board, ordinance, and then the ordinance, once it is uh, in effect, the department can decide which written directive is the most appropriate. Some of the technologies may only be used by one bureau or one unit. We have some technologies that are only used by the marine unit. In that case, we would just put out a marine unit order, uh, and then we could do some training specific to the marine unit. Um, so when you look through all of the technologies, just know that every single one of these goes through this process and then comes out with a written directive and then comes out with an implementation and a training program. 
Um, so with that, I'm happy to take any questions about this specific uh, ordinance and the implementation and training program. Thank you, Ms. Steves. Just a couple questions for me. Um, so I think you mentioned this at one point, um, but you said that the blank spaces on this form were for providing additional information. Is that right? Certainly, yes. Okay. Because, yeah, that was the one thing, that was one thing that, that stood out to me was um, that there doesn't seem to be a lot of space for actually explaining what the basis or, you know, the actual facts supporting the legal finding. You know, the checked boxes all provide kind of a legal conclusion, but um, how will a supervisor kind of evaluate if if the request is appropriate or not? If, is, are there, you know, is there... Is there kind of like a, a blank sheets attached where you could write a page long summary? Or I, I'm, this is, I know this is very nuts and bolts, but I'm just kind sure. of curious. Sure, so there, is, there are boxes here that are fillable that there's no um, text limit on us when they're typing it in. Um, also, there is a um, whole section for the captain or above to justify their approval. So we'll be able to track what basis the captain used to approve it. But because the ordinance itself allows this just for pretty much any criminal investigation, if the officer or the requester can demonstrate that this was specific to a criminal investigation and they've given enough information to that captain, they have to document that justification. So we'll have that. Okay. Um, thank you. That's helpful. Um, and then you mentioned at the outset, and I see at the top of the form here, that there'll be kind of a series of orders that covering this request process. Um, are there any, so there's, I'm just reading, a field operations bureau order, a special ops bureau order, an investigations bureau order, and a CED unit order. Are there, between all of these orders, are there any kind of sworn members that wouldn't be covered by one of these, I guess, four orders? Well, there's a whole administration bureau um, that probably wouldn't need to use this other than IA or RMO, um, but, you know, the sworn that are in written directives would have no reason to unless they're doing patrol functions. So we have sworn members all over the department that aren't part of operations that I can't foresee why they would need this for investigative purposes. So that's why we feel that it's best to focus the rollout on the officers that will be using this for investigative purposes. Great. I guess I just I guess the reason I'm asking is it seems like it would apply to essentially all sworn members who were in any type of patrol or investigative capacity. And so just wondering why it would be done via order rather than via DGO at that point. No, that's actually a really good question. So because, again, this is a pilot ordinance that sunsets in 2024 in January, we don't know what this ordinance will look like. It might change. The Board of Supervisors wants to review the data that comes out of the quarterly reports before making a decision on whether to renew this or change this ordinance. Um, also, separately, it doesn't actually apply to the SF safe cameras or the community cameras. So. Um, to make the decision to do a full DGO on a pilot ordinance um, where we actually don't know what it's gonna look like after 2024, I think that discussion can happen. We also have to do this entire process with SF safe cameras, um, and we may have to, I actually think we may fold in, which is SF admin code 19, which is the community cameras. We could do that like as a DGO discussion once this is finalized and once the SF safe 
ordinance is complete. But right now, because it's such a um, piece of the puzzle, it didn't seem appropriate to, to go after a DGO. Commissioner, if I just may briefly add that when any member of the department works in operations, they're, they're required to comply with the bureau order in the bureau that they're working. So even if they're an admin, if they come over to patrol, they have to comply with that. It's very specific to operations. Great. Thank you. That's everything for me. Um, Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you, Vice President Carter Oberstone. A couple of questions, Ms. Steves. Um, thank you for providing the form. I think that um, members of the public who are watching might recall that when this was before the Board of Supervisors, uh, two commissioners, myself and President Elias, wrote a letter to the Board of Supervisors expressing reservations um, and the, the Board of Supervisors uh, doesn't have to listen to us, so they, they went forward. Um, but I'm, gl I'm glad that at, at that time we expressed we wanted to make sure that th there was a clear process. I'm glad that this um, has resulted. Both President Elias and I have seen versions of this form, have been able to comment um, on it. There's a question I've asked before. So up to this point so far, we're you know, February 8th of 2023, the live monitoring has, has not yet been used for investigative purposes, correct? No, not yet. We've been waiting for this process to unfold. We wanted to make sure that we came to the commission, um, showed you where we were at, so that you were aware of what the next steps were before we um, hit the green light on this one. Got it. And I think uh, this was covered a little bit in, in Vice President Carter Oberstone's questioning, but once the, the, the training and the unit orders are rolled out, any sworn officer in an investigatory capacity or an operations capacity can make this request. It's not limited to certain units only, correct? They can make this request through their chain of command and through their captain, correct? As long as, got it. Mm -hmm. um, you'd mentioned that you know, you're starting the training with the captains and the trainers. You mentioned that it, it's clear to captains that they can grant or they can deny requests. And what criteria are they using? Under what circumstances would they grant a request? And under what circumstances would they deny a request? Sure, so on the form, again, the officer has to show that it's either an exigency, a significant event, uh, that the request is part of an active investigation, uh, if the crime is being investigated or observed, then they have additional information. It's really up to whether that captain, or, or I guess it could be above a commander, feels that this information is justified and, and actually aligns with the investigative information. It's really up to that. I mean how we go with any investigation, right? Any investigative activities. If that captain believes that it is justified, they can approve it. Now, if they feel that there needs more information, that particular captain can ask for more information. Is there any sense, I know it's hard to estimate the use of something that hasn't been you know, implemented yet, but is there any sense among the department of what, what the demand for this policy among among officers would be, how many requests they, would they expect to receive in a, given, in a given period, or is it just gonna be once the training rolls out, we're all gonna learn together? Well, because we're rolling this out in phases, I don't think we expect that it's going to be a full um, representation of how this live monitoring could be utilized. Again, we are starting with the captains and lieutenants, so they're familiar with the forms. Uh, we're starting with parts of investigations, so narcotics and, and burglary. So I think we'll see some instances relating to narcotics and burglary investigations. Um, but I think it'll be we'll see a slower number, I think, in the first quarter. But by third quarter, we'll probably see more get a better idea of what live monitoring operations will actually look like if this ordinance was to move forward. So all I can say is let's look at 
at least Q3 data before we make any determinations. Are officers only able to fill out the Form 619 request once they've completed the required training? Or, you know, if you're in phase one of the training and it, it, it's to the captains, but there's an officer who's, you know, slated for phase two or phase three that thinks he has a need for the investigation per, per policy and orders, can he or she make that request? Sure, I believe the, the bureau order does specify that they must get their training before that they, they can fill it out. Okay. And you mentioned that the first quarterly report of the Board of Supervisors would be in, in April? So it's January, February, March data, but it will be delivered on or before June 1st. So the way it's written in the use policy or the STP says that it's uh, 60 days after the close of the first quarter. Got it. And is that going to a specific committee of the Board of Supervisors? We submit it to full board, and if they want, they can send it to rules for further discussion. Okay. I'd ask, and I guess I'll ask as it approaches, that it also be calendared here at the commission for not just the written report, but but a presentation. I think one thing that, that blindsided a lot of commissioners, I, I think we weren't aware of this until most of us read about it in the news, uh, and and we're sort of scrambling, and I appreciate that as an ordinance it goes to the board, but I think as the oversight body of the, of the department, uh, we should be apprised of it. So if, if once that's submitted, if that could be calendared, and obviously that, that's a request that, that we'll also make to, to the president. Certainly. Um, and then I also asked, uh, this of the chief before, which I think he said that it, it would be possible. I just want to repeat that once the, the training is started and it's rolling out, I would like included in the chief's report as it's getting used, um, you, know, to, you know, for the chief to say this week, you know, there have been five uses of, of Form 619. They're, they're in these neighborhoods and some basic information um, that can be provided to the commission so we can see in real time and not wait until June 1st to know uh, because this is new. And I think how we treat it as a policy, both at the commission level and the board level will be different if it's being used five times a month or 50 times a month or 100. Like, we really don't know what it's going to look like. And so I would uh, like that. Um, and I, I, I know the chief said that was possible, but I'd like to repeat that request that it be included in the chief's report once it becomes live for officers to use. For clarification, are you interested in how many times we've filled out the form or how many actually resulted in operations? Both. Okay. I, I, I'm most interested in how many times it's resolved in operations, but if it turns like, uh, I would like to know the, the comparison if, if, if that represents 50% of the forms requested or 90% sure. of the forms requested. I think all of this would be valuable information for uh, members of the public, for this commission, and to the Board of Supervisors. Certainly. Um, I, I'd also note to, to follow up on something Vice President Carter Oberstone said. I, I think that. Um, this is uh, a rare case of a time where I think order, uh, the bureau orders, the unit orders make sense, given that it's a pilot. I think we're all aware that multiple recommendations to the department has been that overall general policymaking shouldn't be made through, through those means. So I, I would hope that if this uh, ordinance is extended by the Board of Supervisors, um, that we would regulated with a general order and not through through unit orders and bureau orders. Would you want to include the SF safe cameras in that process or would you ask for two separate DGOs essentially? I think if it would be feasible to do one surveillance general order, that would make the most sense to me. Um, you know, there have been times where we've started down the road of one general order and then decided to split it into two where it makes more sense. So I'm flexible on exactly how that looks. But okay. uh, again, I, I think that this is uh, one of the rare cases where it, it's going to be an operation for, at this point, 
only nine more months. And so the process of a general order is, is too cumbersome for this. But should, should it be made permanent, I think this is an important policy that should be enshrined in general order. Sure. And just a note, if we do pursue one DGO relating to, like, let's say, non-city entity surveillance cameras and the SF SafeSafe uh, process is not completed in the ordinance, whatever comes out of the ordinance, might we might have to change the DGO. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think that we've... Uh, one upside of the uh, of the rapid commission work on DGOs is that we've proven to be nimble and be willing to to update and harmonize and, and move quickly as needed. So if, if there needs to be any steps there, um, I'll I got your back. Understood. All right, the, those are my questions. Commissioner Yanez. Thank you, Vice President uh, Carter Oberstone, um, Acting Captain Lazar, Acting Chief Lazar, sorry, and uh, Director Henderson, community at large. Uh, I just thank you for the thorough explanation and the process because I know this is a dance with the Board of Supervisors and with the different departments that we have here. So um, thank you for engaging in this process and also kind of uh, shedding light for the community on, on how much it takes to uplift and get to this point. Uh, the question I have is this document is a, an internal, the internal document for the request process, right? Correct. The first part is, correct. The first part. So um, the, the language here around the request says that it requires the captain approval uh, except in instances of significant events or exigencies, right? So an officer then can determine for themselves that this request will be handed to the community based on one of those two events? Correct. So the ordinance that w went into effect in November does not require uh, a captain or rank or higher approval for significant events and for uh, exigencies. So we're not folding it in here, but we still want this form completed in those, uh, so we can capture all of the other information, uh, but it doesn't require that whole uh, captain or higher approval. Right. And so who determines what is a significant event or an exigency? Sure. That's defined in the uh, STP that was approved by the ordinance. So the significant event, again, is, is listed in the STP right. and also in the ordinance. And also the exigency is slightly different. That definition is slightly different than how SFPD interprets exigency. So we've put it on the form that it is specific to uh, injury of a person or imminent danger or death. So I think... Um, the particular person who's making the request, whether they go through their chain of command or they make that determination. Um, they'll have to put that information here, though, because we're going to go back and determine that that was, it met the criteria of exigency and significant event. Got it. Um, so it, there is some discretion there for the officers to make that determination if one of those incidents occurs. Correct. And then, as you said, they still have to complete the form. Uh, the live request, if it's activated and approved by the consumer, then can only go for 24 hours. So I'm going to assume that we're going to request or expect that this document is completed within those 24 hours or before those 24 hours are up, right? I cannot remember the exact verbiage in the uh, bureau order, but I believe there is some language around when this form needs to be submitted so we can track it. Um, would it be helpful to just include that in that statement? I Absolutely. mean, it, it would be that much easier for folks not to have, not to, have to reference a DJ or a written order. Um, 
Great. So then the other piece or question that I had, so then page two or page three is the public facing document, I'm assuming, right? So let me make the correction. So this is still an internal form, meaning it's processed, the request is handled internally, but we still have to go to an external party. So the internal means internal staff fills it out. Uh, then the external part means the external party can fill it out. But the form itself um, still has to be reviewed by our legal unit before we're responsive to any PRAs, because there may be information relating to active investigations that's included that we don't want to disclose or may not be able to disclose uh, if it outweighs the risk. So um, the form itself won't necessarily be filled out and then posted. Right, so through the whole rules process and all of the hearings for the ordinance, we were very clear uh, with the supervisors that we want to be careful about the entity information getting out and also any information about victims and witnesses that may be allowing us access to their systems. We don't want their information to be public um, in case we put them in harm's way or there's any retaliation. So we're, we're careful about what questions we're asking on the form. Um, again, we don't want your specific address. We may not disclose the entity's name. What we will disclose in the quarterly report, which what we what will be public, is the census tract information, right? And that, again, is put in place by the ordinance to protect the entities, the witnesses, or the victims that are allowing us access to their systems. So it's, an, it's internal in that SFPD members are expected to fill out one part, and then the entity is expected to fill out another part. And the entity, or the part that the entity has to fill out to authorize access is still being drafted, you're saying? No, that's actually still here. Uh, it's, on the, it's on page three, I believe. And some entities are businesses that already have a prescribed way to respond to these requests. So they don't actually have to fill this out if they already have uh, a mechanism to approve uh, law enforcement to have access to their systems. They may have a form letter. They may have some different uh, mechanism. So this is the last page of this form is an ability to say who approved it because we just want to make sure that we can track that this person did approve it, who they are, who they are in the entity, um, or they can replace it with whatever their prescribed approval process is. And so this is the document then that a consumer, a business will receive when the police are requesting that access. Um, and so there is uh, some of the, the reservations that I have about moving forward with the form in its current iteration. Um, it doesn't, I, I know we talked about finding a way to, in a non-coercive fashion, request information from community given the power imbalance that is present. And the way I interpret the form, it just, you know, inquires whether there's permission. It does not state in any way, shape, or form that this is optional or completely uh, voluntary, right? Is there, can we put language in there that makes the consumer or helps the consumer understand that this is completely up to them whether they want to divulge this information. And I say that because I know that every officer interfaces with community very differently. Some officers are much more versed in every DGO and in their professional interface with community. And others need a little bit more guidance, right? And, and I think the more we could 
divulge information with clarity in a document that folks can reflect on and receive, it will make it that much easier for them to cooperate and communicate. Um, can we advise language? Should we just email you some recommendations that you can bring back? Or what is the process you suggest for adopting um, additional language to make this a little bit more uh, ready to, to, to deliver to the community? Sure, this is a fairly easy fix if I'm interpreting uh, what you're saying correctly. We could just add on the second page that, just to your uh, point, is this is not required your access or providing access to SFPD is completely up to your discretion. It's not required. Uh, this is just a request, essentially. We could put some easy language in that last page. That would be ideal, okay. thank you. Um, the, uh, the other question I had was around language access, obviously. Uh, is there a process right now for translating these forms and making sure that the public-facing form is translated in the uh, languages that most... Sure. So every department in SF is required to comply with language access and must have uh, things translated. Our hope is to have this translated at least in five languages so it's available when we provide it to the entity. They they know exactly what we're asking and it's in their, the, in their language. So we will comply with language access. Great. Thank you very much. Any additional questions? I don't see any. Thank okay. you, Ms. Steves. Thank you so much. Sergeant, can we go to public comment? At this time, the public is welcome to make public comment regarding line item eight. If you would like to make public comment, please approach the podium or press star three. And Vice President Carter Overstone, there is no public comment. Great, thanks, Sergeant. And for members of the public, we'll just be following regular order from here on out. So could you please call item number one? Line item one, general public comment. At this time, the public is now welcome to address the commission for up to two minutes on items that do not appear on tonight's agenda, but are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the police commission. Under police commission rules of order during public comment, neither police or DPA personnel nor commissioners are required to respond to questions by the public, but may provide a brief response. Comments or opportunities to speak during the public comment period are available via phone by calling 415-655-0001 and entering access code 2487-351-4464. Alternatively, you may submit public comment on either of the following ways. Email the secretary at sfpd.commission at sfgov.org or written comments may be sent via U.S. Postal Service to the Public Safety Building located at 1245 3rd Street, San Francisco, California, 94158. Good evening, Ms. Brown. Hey, good evening. I am very tired today. Um, I used the over. Oh, thank you. Yes, um, I'm here concerning my son, Aubrey Aubrey Casa, who was murdered August 14, 2006. To this day, his case isn't solved. I'm here with his little nephew, Marcus. Um, again, he should uh, be talking with his uncle on how to, you know, just be an uncle, but uh, he's not here from. I would just wonder if there's another way that we can solve these cases for our children so that mothers like myself can get some closure. I bring these pictures this is what I'm left with. 
with the community, with what they left me with, me standing over my son, lifeless. What do we do about these unsolved homicides? Marcus, come here. Come here, Marcus. This is his nephew, Marcus. You want to say hi? Hi. He just turned six years old. And he does, he's, see, he's growing up without his, without his uncle, Aubrey. So, just wanted to say that. His case number is six zero, I mean, zero six zero eight two eight six five eight six two zero three eight. Anyone out there knows who murdered my son, please help. I'm very tired this evening. I've had a long day. My birthday is on the 14th, February 14th, and it's not really good for me. Thank you. Vice President Carter Oberson, that is the end of public comment. Thank you, Sergeant. Next item, please. Line item one, Chief's Report, Discussion, Weekly Crime Trends and Public Safety Concerns. Provide an overview of offenses, incidents, or events occurring in San Francisco having an impact on public safety. Commission discussion on unplanned events and activities the Chief describes will be limited to determining whether to calendar for a future meeting. Hey, good evening, uh, Vice President Carter Oberstone, members of the Commission, Director Henderson, members of the public, members of the department. I'm Assistant Chief David Lazar, filling in in person tonight for Chief Scott. I know Chief Scott is uh, on the line with us here. My job in the department is I oversee operations for the department, which includes field operations, investigations, special operations, and the Airport Bureau. So uh, this evening, I'm going to provide you with the Chief's report. I'll start with announcements. Uh, we celebrated this week the, the Lunar New Year, the Year of the Rabbit, and for our Lunar New Year parade, we had increased staffing. We saw what was happening in Half Moon Bay and also what happened in Monterey Park. We wanted to assure the community that we'd have enough officers out to have a visible presence, and we accomplished that mission. So I know I saw Commissioner Yee at many events, and I want to thank Commissioner Benedicto for participating in the parade. Uh, we just missed the big downpour of rain, so we're very fortunate it was good to have you there. The second thing I'd like to mention is the Community Academy for the public. This is through our Community Engagement Division. It's one of our strategies to let the community see what the police department does up close and personal. That starts on February 23rd and ends on April 20th. We ask that the public go to our website. Uh, we have very few applicants, so we'd love to see people back in our Community Academy, and this is really kind of post-pandemic. On Monday, we started the 279th recruit class. They graduate in September. And then today, Acting Assistant Chief Flaherty and I attended the graduation for the Leadership Development Institute. Uh, we have an internal leadership program where we're developing our leaders in the department, and it was a great event. In terms of crime trends today, I just want to let you know that violent crime year-to-date is up 3%, and property crime is down 20%. Uh, our homicides are up 25%. We've had five this year in comparison with four last year. Uh, one is one too many, and then our gun violence, we've had 
uh, 18 shootings in comparison to 15 this year last, last time. So we, last year at this point. So we, our, our investigations unit are doing a great job. Patrol is doing a good job in getting guns off the street. Our community violence response team and our community crime gun in, um, investigative center is doing a good job uh, with regard to pursuing investigations, but we're also been, intervention has been key to keep these shootings down. We've, we have seized 89 firearms year to date, which is exactly the same amount uh, that we uh, equal to last year. So we're doing a lot of great work there. We had a homicide within this last rating period on the 100 block of Hester on the 31st of January. There were gunshots heard and then we discovered a deceased person in their vehicle. We had a shooting on the 1st of February at Ellison Hyde. During a robbery, someone was shot in the leg. And then on the 3rd, on the 800 block of Ellsworth in the Ingleside District, a person was walking their dog. They heard shots fired and they discovered that they had been shot. Uh, in terms of significant arrests, the Tenderloin, and I'll talk a little bit about our strategy in the Tenderloin during the moments that I have with you, and I'm, you probably have more questions about what's happening there. Uh, but there was a, a really good arrest. There was two subjects along with a 16-year-old. There was an operation that we uh, performed where we got six pounds of fentanyl off the street. Our investigation led to Oakland with some subsequent search warrants, additional 14 pounds of uh, fentanyl along with a ghost gun, ammunition, material related to the development of packaging for narcotics, $14,000 in cash. So our officers are continuing to do the great work in the Tenderloin and throughout the city. We had a incident at a Jewish synagogue in the Richmond on the 2600 block of Balboa. Individual went in and fired off uh, a weapon uh, believed to be blanks. He had done this. We, we also thought he, he did this as well. This was on the 1st, but on the 31st, we thought that he did this as well on the 3600 block of Balboa. And uh, thanks to Sergeant O'Malley from Northern Station made an identification. Subject was taken into custody on February 3rd. We also had um, some AAPI hate incidents that occurred. A battery with serious injury on Kearney, Unibaca Kearney. There was an elderly uh, person who was getting on a bus and he was pushed and when the victim fell, sustained a fractured pelvis, officers located the suspect, took him into custody. We also had an elder abuse incident in Dolores Park where um, members of the AAPI community were near the tennis courts and a subject threw a brick towards them and then swung a heavy object towards them. And um, we were able to take that suspect in custody and they were charged by the district attorney's office. We still experience stunt driving in our city. You may see it in Oakland and San Jose and other areas where hundreds of vehicles come out and spin around and engage in reckless driving. We did have an incident that happened last Sunday coming over from Oakland, 150 vehicles. Uh, they went to Jennings and Armstrong. They went to 41st and Noriega. We were able to um, prevent and intervene and dissuade and, and the vehicles left the area. I wanna talk a little bit about Tenderloin. So uh, to date, we've seized 11,844 grams of fentanyl. Um, with this just week alone, 2,345 grams of fentanyl and $24,000 in cash. Uh, you may have seen uh, on the, well, you may have read in the paper that we had a meeting with the Tenderloin community yesterday, the chief and I and the mayor uh, and other members of the city. And um, we are 
instituting a new approach. I'll be more than happy to talk about that if there's further questions about what we're doing differently. And then the last thing I'll say is uh, the same for Cap Street. You may have seen some information in the media about the problem on Cap. I was invited out by Supervisor Ronan to walk Cap Street on Friday night. I was out there from 10.30 to midnight with her and members of the community and saw the problem that's taking place out there with uh, prostitution and uh, the Johns vehicles are pulling up and uh, we have a lot of challenges out there. So we do have a strategy and I'll be more than happy to talk about what our response plan is. We have a good plan and we've, we've implemented it. And uh, that concludes my report for this evening. Uh, thank you, Assistant Chief Lazar. Um, could you also just give an update on the, the status of the MOU negotiations with the district attorney? Uh, yes, in terms of the MOU uh, negotiations, I know that um, uh, I believe that we've wrapped up the conversation. I know there's a, there's a draft, um, and I think there's a couple other procedural things that need to take place with a goal by getting things to this commission and kind of wrapping things up by the end of the month. Um, but very grateful for the ongoing conversations we've had and, and the judge that's uh, assisted us in that. Uh, uh, yes, please. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> so that draft, which we were supposed to receive, uh, I think the department said they were gonna get it to us uh, January 18th for that language that exists. We still haven't seen it. I think we brought it up again in uh, February 1st uh, we were again told the draft exists and they'll send us the language. We still don't have the draft language. It's never been sent to us. Okay, so hey. we're... Go ahead. Um, yeah, I'm still on. I was gonna, just going to clarify for uh, the commission and Director Henderson. We met with the judge. Uh, the judge was out on vacation and he came back, I think, January 22nd. We had a meeting with him when he came back. And so we do have an agreed upon draft with the DA. And from that agreed upon draft, a draft that you can, we're making some modifications based on that draft. I believe it's done already. It's at the city attorney for review, which we plan to have it in your hands, uh, hopefully by the end of the week. Do we have a draft to give you, Director Henderson? Um, and everything with the DA's office, at least we have an agreement with the DA's office, but the commission has asked for both drafts at the same time. So once you get it in your hand and provide your input, we'll be quick to resolve. If there's anything to resolve, resolve that. I just want to clarify, because I want to make sure that we're talking about the same thing. I'm not trying to insert myself or participate in whatever's going on with the department and the district attorney's office. That's a separate thing. I'm specifically talking about the side MOU regarding right. uh, DPA. I just want to be clear, because I think the thing that you were talking about was the agreement and the arrangement with the courts and the DA's office. I'm not touching oh, it, I'm no, not no, involved in any of that. I'm sorry, I, I wasn't. The, the agreement with DPA that we're drafting could not be finished until we finished the discussion with the DA's office because it because of the language that uh, is in there, we are recommending the modifications to the draft you provided us. So we had to finish that language with the DA's office before we could do that, and, and we are there now. Great. Uh, thank you for that update. Um, AC Lazar, I, I think, um, I'm not sure if you mentioned this. I mean, so first of all, great work on, on those arrests and drug interdictions. I'm not sure if you mentioned this, but I think I saw late last week, maybe Friday, that there was 
um, uh, I think it was five arrests made and 20 plus pounds of fentanyl seized. Oh, you did cover that. I caught the six-pound one. Okay. And, and in that, in the reporting, it said that it was part of an ongoing or a longer-term investigation by the Narcotics Division. Is there, um, is there anything more that you could, with, you know, without disclosing any sensitive information, is there anything more that you could say about, um, you know, the strategies that, that led to this um, successful case? Yeah, without really compromising what we do and what our members do, I mean, I just will say that we pay attention to all the sales activity, and if it leads us to other parts of the Bay Area or multiple individuals, that's what our narcotics unit is good at doing. We also work closely with our federal partners. So I think sometimes the public thinks that we just go after the seller on the corner, but we it's a two-pronged approach. We do that, and we also try to go to some of the sources, and we kind of work backwards from there. And this is evidence of a, of a great job done by our members on that. Great, thank you. Um, there was another report that I read, and I want to be very careful about this because I didn't actually see it covered in any major publication. Um, but there was a report that, in fact, you were quoted in AC Lazar involving a situation where it, it was reported that um, California Child Protective Services issued a, a warrant for basically the, the rescue of a 14 year old girl that was being sex trafficked by a gang. Um, and that uh, I think it was a former SFPD sergeant who now works for a nonprofit uh, reached out to the department to urge them to to make um, to, to basically rescue her um, because there was information about her exact whereabouts and that that the department no one from the department took action on that is there any additional could you first of all just is that true because um, it wasn't widely reported and and if so um, can, can you provide any additional detail about that? Yeah, so um, thank you for asking the question, Commissioner. So there was a report of a, an underaged human trafficking victim that was in the Bayview District, and it was also believed that she had a warrant for her arrest under 300 of the Welfare and Institutions Code. And it's alleged, you know, we're still trying to sort out what exactly happened, that this retired member, instead of doing what we encourage the public to do by calling 911 and describing what has, has occurred and requesting officers to respond, elected to just call the police station and tried to say, I'm a retired member, can you help me? And um, the, that member, that retired person was not met with any, according to their, them, was not met with any um, response. So as a result of that, the, the, per, the, the, the human trafficking victim left the area. So a couple of things have ha since happened. One is that allegation has been sent to the Department of Police Accountability. They have that. So Director Henderson's team will look into exactly what occurred, who the member spoke with, and what the response was, and we'll figure that part out. Uh, but even though I've encouraged that team of private investigators to call 911, I still get, got a call at 11.20 last night as I was asleep and uh, from a department member that said that that same person was back at the location and needed assistance. So I then made phone calls that made officers respond that thankfully led to a search warrant of the premise and apprehension of this young lady that, that we rescued. So that's the good news as a result of what occurred. 
But again, still, I was called as opposed to 911, and we'll continue to work with them to, to, to make that happen. But DPA will look into the first part. Well, I'm really happy to hear that, that she was able to be saved and identified. That's really great news. I, I do just want to ask for clarity, assuming that what this person, uh, the, this retired member alleges is accurate, that, that he did come, he did go directly to the station with this information. Is there any reason that you could think of why the officers who received that information shouldn't have acted swiftly to, um, to, to, to rescue this child? Yeah, I, I will say that, you know, we, we work on prioritizing everything. I don't know, I haven't looked into what exactly was, what was going on at Bayview Station at the, on that date and that time, uh, whether they were interviewing victims or suspects at the station, whether they were in the middle of reports. It sounds like they may have been busy doing something. I know the media reported that they were standing around or, or things like that. Um, and, and I will say, that for something that important, we have to make a way to facilitate officers going out to deal with it. And I think if you ask the average supervisor or management level person in the department, they would say, yeah, we, we would figure out a way to get out to that scene because this is really important. And um, again, I think we're all speculating because we just don't know the facts. We've heard one side, and that's why the DPA will get to the bottom of it and figure out exactly what happened. But, uh, I'll conclude that by saying, to your point, it's important we need to go out there and deal with it and help this young lady. Great. Thank you, uh, Chief Lazar. Um, that's everything for me. Commissioner Walker. Uh, thank you, uh, President Carter Overstone. Um, thank you for the update, Chief. Um, I, I do have a few um, questions. Um, it's really good news about a focused action plan in the Tenderloin. Um, I think that it's so multi-layered. I know that, you know, there's the drug sales, but there's also um, a lot of sort of other issues that present. And I wonder if the conversation includes the other departments like Department of Health and DPW. And I mean, that it's really important right now to get those issues dealt with. Um, also, um, there was a report also about the um, illegal vending um, in the plaza there. Um, I know that both both BART stations and the mission have this issue. And um, is this included in the overall plan in the Tenderloin? All of those issues. Yes, um, yes to everything. Okay. So really it's not, it, the police department has one slice of the pie, right. but it's really a collaborative effort you know, public works, public health, Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing, the Sheriff's Department, the DA's office, all of us coming to the mayor's office, yeah. you know, all of us coming together in a, in a way that we communicate and collaborate to solve the problems that we have there. And um, I look forward to talking about the strategy, but I will say with regard to UN Plaza, uh, as you may know, the legislators in California took off the books the ability for local law enforcement to enforce vending. We used forever, we had a, a section that we would use, and so that's no longer on the books. So what the Public Works has done, or what the city has done, has enacted a law that Public Works can enforce administrative citations for the sales of illegal activity, or sales of illegal vending on UM Plaza, and we come along and we support them. And so that coordination effort is still uh, in progress. Okay, 
That's great. Yeah, it's there's there's so many moving parts, and I know that all of us have been on ride-alongs and walk-alongs, and um, I know that the tenderloin has really vastly improved in many areas, but the activity seems to just migrate. Um, so it's going to the South of Market, the 7th and Mission, and um, I know that I read an article about the increased um, budget for the alchemy or the like group in doing uh, mental health response. Um, and I, I'm hopeful that the police or the department, especially the academy, is involved in some sort of training around all that. So as these conversations happen interdepartmentally, um, is that being discussed about the potential training that might be needed for these collaborative efforts? Well, I actually have a meeting with Urban Alchemy, the head of Urban Alchemy, on Friday. We're going to meet at Golden Gate and, and Hyde. And we want, one of the things I want to talk with them about is to really how do we improve our coordination and our communication, especially in areas where we address problems. We need Urban Alchemy to come in behind us and really hold ground and do outreach and do the things that they do. We have to get better at it, and I, I feel confident that after Friday's meeting, we'll be able to work that part out. Great. I'm really, uh, I'd love to have that on the agenda to just sort of, without, you know, getting details that we don't need necessarily or don't want to share, but um, I think it's really an opportunity to, for really strengthening that collaboration a lot. So thank you. Yes, thank you. Commissioner Yi. Uh, thank you very much there, uh, Vice President Carter Overstone. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you, uh, Assistant Chief uh, David Lazar. I know we met prior to the Chinese New Year uh, Lunar, or actually the, the Lunar New Year Parade, uh, talking about strategy on safety, public safety. Uh, to see it, um, I guess it's, it's like seamless uh, that your members have uh, done a uh, great job there in implementing public safety throughout the parade. Not only the parade, that day was also the Warriors. Uh, so I, I, I guess we got probably 300 people here, 300,000 people in the city. So uh, congratulations to, to the police department and the members and keeping us safe. Um, I was just um, want to also thank you for uh, getting off the, the drug fentanyl from um, our city and, and going across the, to the distributor. So again, uh, thank you, uh, your members, for the hard work. Uh, my, I would like to also say ghost guns. I don't know if we can, is there a way to probably reduce the sale of ghost guns where we can also partner with the state and federal uh, to shut down the, I guess, the distribution of uh, ghost guns that are coming a problem for us and even officers as you know are probably aware of the San Jose issues that um, these guns are this now uh, a, a big problem for us in the state and the city so seeing what your thoughts are yeah first thank you Commissioner Yi for your comments about Lunar New Year you know really a, a shout out to the leadership and operations and the captains all throughout the city that made sure we had visibility in the corridors and thank you to Captain Farmer uh, who made sure there was enough officers all throughout uh, Chinatown during the Lunar New Year event. I really believe that 
based on his work, we prevented a lot of problems there. So it's definitely a team effort, but thank you for your comments. And then with regard to ghost guns, you know, this is a big problem for us in our city, in our country. And we uh, work tirelessly to get the ghost guns off the street. Part of the number that I provided you uh, does reflect the ghost guns. And I just will say that we already partnered with our federal partners at ATF to work on ghost guns. I know that uh, there's a lot of work behind the scenes happening with our department and ATF as it relates to finding individuals that are in possession and distributing and all that that goes on. So without divulging too much of what we do there, just know that we're, that's the work that we're doing currently. Thank you very much there. Assistant Chief uh, David Lazar. Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you, Vice President Carter Oberstone. Um, I know you alluded to uh, the meeting that um, you'd had with um, some Tenderloin businesses announcing a new, a new police strategy uh, and operations in the Tenderloin. I know that, that that had been reported, and I think you mentioned you could elaborate more on that. So if you, uh, go ahead, Chief. Yes, thank you very much for the question. So, you know, our strategy in the Tenderloin, as the public may know or as this, this commission knows, is that we have had... You know, regardless of the shortage of officers, we have the most officers assigned right now to the Tenderloin District than any other district station in the city. And our initial uh, response has been that of uniformed, high visibility foot beats. At one point, we made a decision to send 20 officers there. It was a really big lift for the department to put officers there to be visible. What we have seen, however, is still rampant drug sales, drug sellers on various corners, a lot of complaints coming in from the community, a lot of you know, issues that we see that we're not really pleased with. And so um, Captain Canning did a great job during his time there, and we now have Captain Sergio Chin, who's taking the baton and is running uh, in, that, in the same direction and in different direction. Um, but what we decided, and what we decided to do is we had to do something different. And what we've come up with is Really, at the end of the day, this is about disrupting the market. Like, how do you disrupt the ongoing sales of fentanyl when the volume is just so great? The resources are just so limited. How do you do it? And so what, we've, uh, what we're doing is that, under the leadership of Captain Chin, is really, instead of officers walking beats, they've kind of been converted into really... Um, Operation disruption is what we call it, where they're just going to where the sales activity is and being present and kind of being on top of them and sending a message that, no, you cannot sell on this corner. And when the sellers move to the next corner, we go there. And then when they move again, we go there as well. And just really trying to interrupt and disrupt the market by our presence. Um, this is in combination with also continuing to do our drug sale by bus activity. We're starting something new that, that's called Operation Save Lives, where not only are we um, getting the sellers for selling, but we're also observing sales activity. We are detaining those that are involved in sales. We're recovering the narcotics. And we may not necessarily make an arrest, but we'll work to build bigger cases and more cases, and then eventually make the bigger arrest there. So we're doing that uh, differently. We're going to continue to focus on drug users because drug users need help and, uh, and it's not acceptable for them to just sit on a sidewalk and use drugs in an open uh, place. So we are going to be working, continue to work with public health 
on our attempt to get them services, but we will enforce the law as it relates to that. Um, and then I think we have a little bit of a marketing issue because on our Twitter, we have 17,000 followers, uh, but we haven't been promoting the work we're doing, whether we're confiscating narcotics or making arrests or getting guns. So we're gonna try to promote some of this work to show the community what we're doing. Um, and I will say that some of the folks that have been very vocal, who we're grateful for, uh, that text me and the chief and others all the time, in the last 72 hours have said, I'm starting to see a difference. The 300 block of Hyde looks clear. The 600 block of Eddy looks clear. It's that focused, constant approach. And the last thing I'll say about our Tenderloin strategy is that we've also committed to adding 20 more officers on a, on a uh, on, well, 20 more officers one day a week starting in March, 20 more officers two days a week on a temporary from other stations backfill overtime to make sure that we have even more officers and more of a presence and more of ability to hold down these areas. So it's great for three days, but we're, what we've heard loud and clear from the community is that it needs to be constant and we need to work to really eliminate drug sales. So that's what we're doing. Thanks, Chief. Uh, Commissioner Byrne. Uh, thank you, uh, Vice President. Thank you. Um, so um, it's a particular interest to me, the Tenderloin, and I didn't bring it up tonight, but um, are you doing anything? Um, the two streets that I've noticed where the most trouble is, is, um, is Golden Gate um, between, um, between Hyde and Larkin. Um, there's an, uh, uh, a series of apartments there that elderly live in. I mean, they're blocked. Um, people are, you know, you go, walk there in the evening, it's across from Hastings. You walk there in the evening and, you know, as you walk with the uniform officer, um, all sorts of uh, people disperse themselves. Um, and there's a lot of housing going in there now, um, which is gonna add more life to the, to the area. But a lot of the prospective law students, whoever is gonna move into those buildings, they're gonna be dissuaded. And, and the whole idea is to, to have, or at least I believe, to have all social classes mix in, in the city. And you, you, like, I haven't seen a change on that street and, and the, because there's housing there. Now there's less housing in the other area, which I'm sure you're familiar with, on 7th Street between Mission and Market. Um, that's where, uh, you know, I witnessed an overdose and watched uh, uh, a sergeant of yours save a person's life um, like a few weeks ago. Um, because there's government buildings there, there's not as much housing. So in that sense, it doesn't affect uh, the public. But because it's in a transit, lots of civilians, as you would call them, are walking the area, and they have to walk through that. And like some sort of permanent, throw one of those uh, command vehicles there, just do something to shake it up. Because those two areas have not changed at all uh, since I've been on the commission. And I've gone down evenings and during the day and all that. And yes, it is true that the daytime is better, but nighttime is a different world down there. And uh, it, you mentioned the areas, the other parts of the Tenderloin where you'd seen uh, improvement, 
But to me, and I've walked it plenty of times, those are the two, those are the two areas that are most impacted. Um, and, and I agree, the more impacted area doesn't have as much housing, so people aren't affected, but the foot traffic is definitely affected. And what's going on on Golden Gate is, is really disturbing because elderly people live there. And why would they even go out at night when, when they have to go out to that? And, you, you know, anyway, I made my point. I, I, but that's what I want to address. Like. Yeah. No, Commissioner, you, you do bring up a great point. And these are conversations that uh, Chief Scott and I have all the time and the leadership and operations. You know, um, that block of Golden Gate really is, the night, is a night issue, as you know. Yeah. And what the two, the areas, well, there's two things that I think about. One is, you know, we definitely need a place for people to go at night. And that's the ongoing conversation we need to have with public health, whether it's a wellness center or some place that people can go at night to get the help that they need and not be on the streets. So we continue to talk about that and that, that's working with our partners. But, but the but other they thing- they attract the drug dealers. When, when they're there like that, the drug dealers come to them. Yes. And, and the point is that when, when the uniform officers show up, they dissipate. The same thing on, on, um, on 7th Street. And the idea, at least and I've seen this now for a, over a year and a half, the idea is that if there's a uniform presence there with a const, at least the dealers will be away. I understand that uh, the people, the, the addicts that are addicted, I understand that they need a place to congregate, and, and I realize that, they're, they're, that in many ways they're a social community amongst themselves. And certainly, I don't want to discourage that, but I, but I certainly want to discourage the drug dealers coming and supplying them with drugs. Yeah, yes, and absolutely. Oh, I have not, to be frank, I have not seen any sustained presence in both of those areas, because when I go out in the evening times, I've done a few times, it's when I say, let's go here, we go here. And, and I think that there has to be a statement made to those people that want to bring the poison in. Hey, we're here, please go away. And I think, and it has to be a real public statement. Something more has to be done. Uh, and it, it, you know, and I, I'm, I'm not against collecting fentanyl. What I am, what I want is to try to give quality to the people that live on Golden Gate Avenue and to do something for the huge foot traffic in the UN Plaza, particularly on, between, on 7th Street between Mission and Market. It, it's just, it's just unacceptable. It's, there's, there's just no reason for it. So two points I'd like to make. Uh, point number one is that we want to really have our night supervising captain and the leadership that manages the city at night to spend more time focusing in on the tenderloin when the captain goes home and the lieutenants may go home to really redirect resources to make sure that that block of Golden Gate is clear, that to make, make sure that the 7th Street between Mission and Market is, is clear. So that's point number one is that we need to continue to have leadership focusing in on addressing those areas for the points that you've described and reallocating resources accordingly. But the second point I'd like to make, and I'm sure the public and everyone realizes, is that the more we focus in on areas, the more we'll see displacement. The more we see displacement, there'll be new areas that we'll, we'll be talking about. You'll, you'll be asking me, well, why, why is it happening on Howard Street? So as an example. So we, we just need to be very mindful of um, where the displacement goes 
and we need to address things as we as we need to address these situations as they come up. Understand. Thank you, Commissioner Yanez. Thank you, Vice President uh, Carter Upperstone uh, and AC Lazar. I just uh, would like to know a little bit more about the strategy that will be happening in the on Cap Street. I did read a little bit about you know they, there will be some barriers coming up, and I live not too far from that Las Vegas Strip <laughs> uh, replica there. And I know that from living in the mission for over 20 years, this historically has happened where um, you know there will be uh, you know that type of activity on Cap Street, it gets addressed, it moves on down to like Shotwell Street, it gets addressed, it moves on back over to Cap Street. What is the containment strategy, I guess, so that we don't deal with what is happening in the Tenderloin when we have enforcement in one neighborhood like that? So Commissioner, just as you have described, that's what we are anticipating about to happen, that Cap Street is gonna be clear and then we'll be on Shotwell and we'll continue our efforts the goal really is to make sure that we send a message that it's just not acceptable to have this behavior take place, whether it's on CAP, Shotwell, the mission, the city, anywhere, our presence needs, needs to be there. And we really need to be strategic, use our resources appropriately, and take action. And so really that's been our thought. And it was great walking CAP Street with the supervisor and the community Friday night. I got to see, uh, see it up close and personal. So a couple of things we're gonna do is, we're gonna assign a lieutenant full-time to just Cap Street for the next 60 days. Because we need someone in a management position to really coordinate the enforcement, coordinate resources, coordinate our partners, hopefully coordinate our nonprofit partners who can come in and work with uh, young women to get them out of this lifestyle. I feel like we need to be really about that, trying to help people. Um, we're going to conduct enforcement on those who solicit driving around in their vehicles. We're finding a lot of folks are from out of town. So we're going to make sure that we do that. Um, we are going to work on traffic enforcement uh, also. And um, we are very clear of our 9.07 and some of the rules that are being laid out there. But I'm going to tell you, I mean, there's the impeding the flow, running a stop signs, there's speeding. There's all these different things that we're going to be focusing on to send a message that you just can't come to our community and drive and, and behave in this way. And so we're, we'll have a presence. We'll set up a command post. We will uh, do everything we need to do to displace, address, hopefully help people, et cetera. And the last thing I'll say is that the supervisor has put forth a plan. I have a copy of it uh, for street closures. And it's not necessarily street closures. It reminds me more of cul-de-sacs because for example, 19th is closed, but 18th is open, and the sign says it's a dead end now, and you, you drive through, and then you have to turn around. Um, I'm grateful for all the ideas that we can come up with to dissuade things from happening on Cap Street, but that is really just kind of in a pilot. Uh, we'll have to see what the potential unintentional fallout may be as a result of setting up our roads like that. I know this Friday night, um, the public should know that I'll have 10 motorcycle officers out on Cap Street and coming out with a big presence to say we're not accepting this and the community has been waiting. And the very last thing I'll say is I want to give a big shout out to Captain McEachran who has worked really hard in the, on this issue. It's one of those things where we need to all support him in the department. And um, 
and the community, and he's done a great job in rallying the community and organizing the community and developing solutions. It's, and it's time for enforcement. So um, thanks to Chief Scott for his support and all of us, uh, we, we need to make a difference and we're, so we've started. I, I appreciate um, the explanation, the, the effort, right? Because there is, um, you know, it's been an increasing issue. It's just kind of gotten really out of control in the last few months, I understand. And it makes sense that there are even people coming from out of town specifically for that purpose, it seems like. Um, but somewhat along the lines of uh, the item you identified of there is human trafficking taking place in some of these instances, right? Is there a specific unit that works with that population? Are there relationships with organizations um, that specifically target working with those victims? Because it is a very different approach to working with victims of human trafficking than it is with someone who is being traumatized for some other reason, right? Y yes, thank you. So uh, Sergeant Inspector Tony Flores of the Department's Special Victims Unit is our expert on human trafficking. He's closely involved in the plan. He'll be helping us with the operations. He'll be helping us connect the resources that we need. I really want the, the women that are involved in this to have outreach happen, to see if we could help them, to see if we can get them away. They are victims of human trafficking. Um, they are engaged in this activity. We do see uh, folks out there that are what we believe putting the women out on Cap Street, they're there as well. We're gonna be addressing that. Um, so it's multifaceted, but, but yes, that's definitely a very important part of our plan. I'll just mention an organization that does great work with that is the Missy organization. I believe they uh, work out of uh, East Bay, M-I-S-S-E-Y or M-I-S-S-S-E-Y. Um, and they have a robust approach that has proven to be really successful. I don't know that we have a model similar to that in San Francisco, but it would be great to explore that. Thank you for your report. Thank you. I'll follow up on that as well. Thank you. Um, AC Lazar, just one follow-up for me. Actually, Commissioner Benedicto always asks this question, so I didn't ask, but I will ask since he didn't ask today, which is what is the current expiration date for the MOU, and um, is there a plan to extend it, if you, if you know? Uh, maybe Chief Scott can answer that, or um, Kara Lacey, yeah. you want to come up and maybe address that? The question about the MOU expiration, I, I know the current, the current one is still, we're using the current one if something were to happen this evening, that's, that's still in effect, but if you can come can. up. If I'm still on, can you all hear me? I, yes, Chief, on. yes. Sorry, yeah, it's uh, February 28th, it's the end of this month. So it currently expires February 28th, so I suppose then it's it's likely an extension will be necessary because it seems unlikely the commission will see the latest version at our next meeting, which would be the last meeting before it expires. Yeah, if if um, if a extension is necessary, yes, we will do likely because I do think we'll be resolved uh, before then. But if it is necessary, we will not let the current. Great, thanks, Chief. And in, in, in the, could you, could the department please notify the commission if and when an extension is agreed agreed upon by the parties? Yes, absolutely. We will. Thank you. And, and I'm and I'm asking because if it is agreed upon, it will likely be in between commission meetings. So I just want to know if we could just get an email update. Um, that would be great. 
Yes, sir. Thank you. Okay. We will do that. Okay. Thank you, Chief. All right. Seeing no one else in the queue, Sergeant, could we please go to public comment? At this time, the public is now welcome to make public comment regarding the Chief's report. If you'd like to make public comment, please approach the podium or press star three. Hi, I'm liking to use the overhead again. We were talking about all the um, unsolved homicides. I'm, well, I'm here concerning that. We're talking about all the killings that is going on in our, in our city. What about the unsolved homicides of all of these victims, including my son? These cases haven't been solved yet. We're focusing attention on other things. Why don't we put that same attention on unsolved homicides? Uh, again, so like mothers like myself can heal. Uh, I bring these names of the perpetrators that murdered my son. Uh, Hannibal Thomas, I just got his name backwards. Paris Moffitt, Andrew Vadu, Jason Thomas, Anthony Hunter, and Marcus um, Carter. One of them is deceased. You have all the names of the perpetrators that murdered my child. And they say it's not enough. Uh, no one's coming forth. What do we do with this $250,000 of the reward money? for my son? Is it just sitting here and no one's doing anything about it? It's just, it's just a number? How can we use it to solve the, solve the homicides? I will keep coming here for the rest of my life. I want something done. I'm not going away. If I gotta repeat myself over and over and over again, Something needs to be done, not just about my son, but all the unsolved homicides. Something more needs to be done. Thank you. Vice President Carter, we're that is the end of public comment. All right, next item, please, Sergeant. Line item three, DPA director's report, discussion. Report on recent DPA activities and announcements. Commission discussion will be limited to determining whether to calendar any of the issues raised for a future commission meeting in the DPA monthly statistical reports, November and December 2022. Go. Okay, great, thank you. Uh, so we've shifted a little bit. Uh, a lot of the stats that I would typically give are now online, so we'll just start in with the trends and the more relevant updates so that our reporting is more similar to the departments for these meetings. But uh, in case folks are still looking for those numbers, they are posted. Uh, I'm going to include uh, the number of cases because I think it's still important on cases that are still pending, uh, both with the commission and with uh, the department. So we still have nine cases pending with the commission, uh, and we still have 89 cases that are pending uh, with the chief. In terms of our weekly trends, uh, this week, 21% of our cases, uh, in terms of allegations, remember these are allegations, not actual cases whose investigations have ended in results yet, 21% of the allegations uh, have, were from officers failing to take required action. That's typically 
one of the more common allegations that are made, and just to make it clear, both for the public and the audience, uh, that's an umbrella allegation. So when we say that there is failure to take required action or that allegation is made, it usually is a result or deteriorates into after an investigation, either a failure to investigate or a failure to write a police report. I'm just providing more information so people have an understanding week to week of what I'm talking about. Uh, the second um, the second most popular allegation that was made this week, 13% of the allegations, was for officers allegations of officers behaving or speaking inappropriately to or with the public. Uh, the full list uh, to get to 100% is posted already, so I won't read all of the numbers there. Uh, in terms of the district break breakdown, uh, the highest allegations came out of Central Station this week uh, and involved uh, parking citation violations and allegations of retaliatory behaviors with the public. Uh, in terms of our monthly statistics, uh, these are just summaries, uh, overview summaries from both November where 51 cases came in, 39% of those cases involved uh, allegations of officers speaking or behaving inappropriately with the public. Again, these are allegations, not the result of the investigations. For December, there were 60 cases that came in and 30% of those cases involved allegations, again, of officers speaking or behaving inappropriately with the public. Again, these are allegations and not the ultimate results from sustained cases or investigations after DPA investigates cases. In terms of outreach, uh, on Friday the 10th, uh, we will be participating in the Northern California Public Interest Service Day. Um, this is a Bay Area event for uh, students to be introduced, law students to be introduced to public service, careers in public service, along with a number of other city departments and governmental agencies uh, talking about the work. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, in terms of our audit this week, uh, DPA and the controller's office have completed the review of the SFPD's 24-month status updates on the recommendations that were made in the 2020 use of force audit. Again, Recommendations are made and there are periodic check-ins regarding the recommendations that have been made or outlined from the audit, and these are the ongoing reports that are presented to this body. Ten of those 37 recommendations still remain open. Uh, notice has already been given and published. You can find those recommendations on the website, uh, and most of those recommendations concern a review of use of force incidents uh, about training and publishing data. Uh, there are no outstanding audit information requests with SFPD. That will be part of my ongoing presentation uh, with audit that I'm going to be giving uh, weekly. In terms of uh, the department news and things internal with the department, uh, I just am giving notice now that I'm going to start making presentations uh, and the quarterly reports from some of the other teams that heretofore don't get a lot of uh, public acknowledgement or attention, mostly because the work that they do is more confidential than not, and it, it's difficult to talk about it, uh, other than uh, how it ties into some of the policy work, which I feel gets a lot of the attention, but there's so much more work that's collaborative that we give, 
And so starting with the quarterly reports that you're going to see, see and hear from DPA in the future, I'll be outlining the roles from the investigative teams, the legal teams, and our administrative teams that all contribute to all of the work that goes on at DPA, just so the public uh, and this body has a more informed um, presentation about the work that goes on in DPA. Uh, part of that is the ongoing work to highlight and showcase that work, but also to make it clear more what DPA is doing beyond just the outreach and the updates that this body hears. Uh, which leads me to the introduction of our new staff. They're here in the audience. One of the things that we started doing with new employees is having them come uh, to the police commission to a meeting live and in person to see uh, these meetings uh, in real time. Uh, and so I'd ask those employees to stand as I call their names so I can introduce them to all of you. Uh, new investigators, Karen Moore, who came from the district attorney's office where she worked as a victim witness investigator. Uh, Vincent Villa, who came from a private law firm where he was an investigator earlier. Uh, Ashley Ishuta, a returnee to DPA after a hiatus as an investigator with Oakland Community Police Review Agency. Uh, in our accounting division, Zolma Salas. She previously worked as an administrative assistant and an officer manager for the Church Paris Insurance Company. Uh, and our Julius Terman fellow, who is Karen Turner, who joined DPA uh, and came to us from Spelman, where she graduated with honors. Uh, also, Oscar Salas is here. Did I forget anybody? Uh, Oscar is working with our office with our IT team. Uh, and these are our new staff employees for the past few months that have come uh, to participate in tonight's meeting. Thank you guys so much for being here. Welcome to Police Commission. Uh, we have nothing in closed session tonight. Uh, we, our senior investigator who is present today in case there are issues that come up for DPA tonight uh, is Candace Carpenter, who is here in the room with us. Uh, if folks have, uh, uh, would like to reach out to DPA, you can contact us online at sfgov.org forward slash DPA. You can also contact us from, by phone number 415-241-7711. And that concludes my report. I have some input on the few additional agenda items, but I'll wait until those things come up. Uh, but I just wanted to thank the commission uh, and the department for addressing the issues with the delays uh, that we've, we've already discussed it. But it's, it's such a big deal. And I just want to acknowledge this has been an issue that has had a very long history. Uh, the fact that we're all coming together now to address it in a way that is comprehensive and specific, I think is is great. It's I just don't want it lost on the audience that this is not like a new thing that just came up. This is a big ship that's being turned around in real time. And so the fact that we're able to have these conversations in real time to address it, I think is really going to be important. Uh, and again, 90% of these problems uh, can be addressed with better and direct communication. I think that's the real solution. And as painful as it is in these moments, I think it's getting us to where we all need to be in order to make sure that we are more professional, 
more responsible uh, and more comprehensive in addressing the needs, both for the public and for the work. So that concludes my presentation. Uh, thank you, Director Henderson. Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you, Vice President Carter Oberstone. Uh, just a couple of quick things, Director Henderson. I was looking at the monthly reports that were included in our written materials. I actually don't know the answer to this more generally. I know, obviously, DPA gets plenty of reports that are not for the agency it oversees. I was looking, for example, at someone complaining about a San Jose police officer. Is that forwarded by DPA to the San Jose police auditor? Do you advise the, or do you advise the complainant that this is where they can get information? Like, what is the process when someone brings a complaint about a different jurisdiction? I am so glad you asked that question because it gives me an opportunity to explain uh, that recently we have, complete, have completed and pulled together a complete directory for other agencies throughout the entire state. Uh, and the front desk staff, and again, this is part of the information that I think it's missed that I'll be including in my quarterly reports uh, regularly, is trained and does provide information as to the agencies to contact and the individuals to contact for people to call in. And it is a frequent thing that people call in and they complain about uh, something that may be CHP or something that may be Park Police or something that may be another entity like the deputy sheriffs or some other agency that is not SFPD. We both track those things and that information can be found in the annual report, but it's not explained in the way that I just explained it so people know and understand that we are... Uh, a lot of people contact our agency. They don't know how to contact other agencies or what other agencies exist, and my staff does provide them with a referral and information about whom to contact or how to contact those. Got it. That's, yeah, that's very helpful because I know that that's a big part of, of, of the number of, of complaints you receive. Um, I also wanted to note last week when talking about the languishing DGO, or about, oh, it was a Sparks report last week, we talked about upcoming DGOs, and there was... Um, I know that both um, Acting Director Hawkins and myself expressed uh, an eagerness to look at foot pursuit as, as um, a major policy priority for the commission in this calendar year. Uh, and, and I did neglect to uh, thank the DPA interns who put together a great presentation on, on, on foot pursuit. I hope that, uh, yeah, I doubt any of them were still watching commission months after the internships has ended, but if you're still in communication with them I, to express the gratitude to the commission and that we are uh, that they meaningfully contributed to our focus on this policy and so to thank the DPA uh, interns for that. Um, I, I will also say that one of the, deep, the interns, uh, Gabriel Navarrete, that worked on that specific issue uh, at length is still with the office. His work was outstanding. We had asked him to come back. He is waiting with bated breath for us to tackle <laughs> that issue. Uh, and to get it done. And thank you for reminding me because I also forgot to acknowledge uh, that our chief of staff, Sarah Hawkins, is here tonight as well, who stood in last week. Great. And then I know, I know you also have a spring intern class coming soon. So, you know, to those interns that are going to join DPA, you know, that you will be playing a, a really meaningful role in, in, our, in our process. I also want to welcome the new staff. Hopefully this is more of a privilege and less of a hazing for you to uh, att attend our commission meeting uh, tonight. But Welcome, nonetheless. Uh, I'd also note that I think that while in, in, in a perfect world, the delays related and, and missed deadlines to DGO 3.01 will decrease with time, I do think there was a lot of value in what we had last week and having an honest conversation with DPA in chief right there. And we got what, 
one of Mighty Joe's, a draft sent like that evening as a result of that conversation. So I asked that, you know, where there is um, something that DPA wants to raise before the commission to use the DPA director's report to note on DJOX, X, we, uh, you know, the deadline just passed, we haven't heard anything, and then we'll have someone in the chief's chair that can reply right away and maybe facilitate um, kind of shorting those delays where they happen, so. I've said in the past, and I'll say it again, I think it's particularly relevant to tonight's conversation that you care about the things that you pay for and that you audit. And since tonight's agenda is both the budget and we've had this robust conversation about what's being audited and reviewed and monitored by the commission, I think it's absolutely relevant. I thank you for your comments, uh, basically affirming uh, that sentiment, so. Thank you. Um, seeing no other comments in the queue, um, Sergeant, can we go to public comment, please? Members of the public, they like to make public comment regarding line item three, DPA director's report. Please approach the podium or press star three. Vice President Carter Overstone, there is no public comment. Thank you, Sergeant. Next item, please. Line item four, commission reports, discussion and possible action. Commission reports will be limited to a brief description of activities and announcements. Commission discussion will be limited to determining whether to counter any of the issues raised for a future commission meeting. Commission president's report, commissioner's reports, and commission announcements and schedule of items identified for consideration at a future commission meeting. Thanks, Sergeant. Um, two quick updates for me for commission reports. Um, as we've discussed, Previously, Chief Scott um, had asked for uh, changes to 9.07 that, that clarify what the DGO does, which is to deprioritize certain um, low-level traffic offenses, and also some language to um, make clear uh, that there are still many avenues left for enforcement uh, while, while, while we're, we're deprioritizing stops, um, but, but not enforcement. Um, I sent Chief uh, yesterday some proposed language that I think could accomplish that, and uh, my understanding is Chief is reviewing that, and um, will get back to us and look forward to um, look forward to his thoughts on that. Uh, the other thing I will say is um, I'm going to ask to agendize for next meeting in closed session the status of the meet and confer discussions as it relates to DGO. 9.07, um, it's my understanding that despite the DGO being enacted a month ago, that there have not been substantive meet and confer discussions. Um, so I, I would like um, to agendize a closed session um, agenda item on this so we can discuss with Director Preston exactly what the status is and for commissioners to be able to give her direction um, on how those negotiations um, should proceed going forward. That is all for me, uh, Commissioner Byrne. Thank, thank you, uh, Vice President Carter Overstone. Um, I, um, as well, I, I've been practicing immigration law for a number of years, and um, as, as many people that live in San Francisco, uh, myself included, we are, we are either immigrants or children of immigrants, and there is an immigration program uh, called a U visa where people that are undocumented, um, if they're a victim of a crime, uh, can apply um, for a work permit, which ultimately can lead to a green card. 
but one of the requirements of the um, of the application is a certification either from the district attorney's office or uh, the San Francisco Police Department. And a number of people have come to me over the years and said, well, where, where do you go in, in San Francisco? So I asked uh, Sergeant Youngblood uh, uh, for who, where, where to go. And uh, I just, uh, I understand that it's Inspector Tony Flores who came up earlier tonight. And he's at the Special Victims Unit at 850 Bryant Street on the fifth floor, room 500. Um, I, I would uh, m make a request that um, that information uh, be put on the uh, Police Commission website. I, I think that, um, uh, as I said before, I think that um, San Francisco has, throughout its history, um, had a welcoming hand uh, to immigrants, uh, both documented and undocumented. And I think that uh, it's a true reflection of San Francisco if we, we can make that information available. Uh, people shouldn't have to be coming to ask me uh, where to do it because of what I do and what I'm supposed to know and I don't know. So uh, w with that, um, that that's, that's my report. Thank you. I think that's a great suggestion. And um, we might also do the same thing for a T visa um, as well for, for helping. Um, well, the, the trafficker visa. Yeah, yeah for, I, for giving information that, that assists right. an investigation into a crime. Right. It is my experience uh, that um, I see far more uh, U's than T's. And, uh, um, you know, uh, there's a limited number that can be granted uh, of the U visa. But it, it, again, without going too long, it's a way of the San Francisco police reaching out uh, to the undocumented community uh, of, of San Francisco, uh, that we're here to help. We're not here to turn you over to ICE. Uh, and, um, and that encourages them, uh, it encourages that community to ro report uh, uh, crime and realize the police are on their side. Thank you. Great, thanks Commissioner Byrne. Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you, um, <clears throat> Vice President Carter Oberstone, and thank you, Commissioner Byrne, for that suggestion. I think that's a great idea. Um, a couple of updates for me um, as, uh, Assistant Chief Lazar said, I was privileged to join in the uh, contingent for the uh, Lunar New Year Parade in Chinatown. Um, it was tremendous turnout, even with um, even with the rain, uh, even though we voted the worst of it. It's been a difficult time uh, with anti-API violence, and uh, it was a real testament to the strength of the community uh, to see that turnout and to see the vibrant and strong show of support from the broader San Francisco community as well, that, um, that this is our home. Um, a couple of updates on general orders. Um, I've started a discussion with SFPD over Department General Order 10.11 uh, to work on the, the, get the working group process started for that. That's a Department General Order involving body cameras. It's a DGO very near and dear to my heart, having worked on it many years ago before being on the commission and looking forward to enacting important updates to that general order. Um, with the assistance of Commissioner Yanez, we continue to attend working groups for DGO 7.01 involving juveniles. In fact, we have one tomorrow. Um, I may have to figure out how to be in two places at once, but I'm looking forward to that, uh, to that meeting tomorrow as well. Um, Additionally, I brought this up a couple of weeks ago that uh, we're coming at the tail end of uh, discussions with stakeholders on DGO 5.16, which concerns search warrants. 
um, in, in germane to our discussion about deadlines and transparency. Uh, I'll share with the public that there are some internal deadlines to get revised comments to the commission and that the department will be submitting the draft of that to the commission on February 17th. Um, and I have asked that that be placed on the commission agenda for discussion and action at our March 2nd, 2023, 2023 meeting uh, so we can finalize that department general order as well. I want to thank all the stakeholders that have worked really hard on DJO 5.16, um, including Carol Lacey, who is, is with us today. Um, and, and, and finally, just one note uh, to add to what uh, Vice President Carter Oberson said. I look forward to getting a closed session update on uh, the meet and confer in, uh, for DJO 9.07 on traffic stops. I also think that pursuant to some of our recent commission action, uh, I look forward to being able to share with the public as much as possible that is not privileged uh, and, and continue the process we've done of sharing not privileged information, which we have uh, an obligation to do. Um, and so hopefully that we'll continue to be as transparent as possible with that process. Um, some commission-related business. I am I'll, I'm submitting to our commission office the resolution on the meet and confer instructions. I don't have to read them aloud each time. Uh, so we can hopefully vote on that soon. And I'm working with our Deputy City Attorney, Elisa Cabrera, on revising the Commission Rules of Order, which I hope to have a draft for our colleagues' consideration at the start of next month. Thank you. Commissioner Yanez. Thank you, Vice President Carter Riverstone. A uh, quick report, just uh, as Commissioner Benedicto mentioned, uh, we are continuing the work on revising the juvenile DGO and um, I was approached and uh, requested last week that we itemize a joint commission meeting with the Juvenile Probation Commission. Uh, I was approached by the, vice, by the president of the Juvenile Probation Commission um, to discuss this uh, restorative justice and diversion programming efforts that the city has undertaken for many years and how we better coordinate those efforts. Um, so that is something that after a conversation with President Margaret um, Brodkin, uh, we are hoping can be agendized for April at some point, which will get us right around the same time to we ha when we have a draft of DGO uh, 701. And I did also have an opportunity to speak with uh, District Attorney uh, Brooke Jenkins about restorative justice in general. Uh, it is my understanding that that department has received an award, a $6 million award to expand restorative justice opportunities and capacity in the city for 18 and 24 year olds. My understanding is that there is an MOU that is being revised at the moment that will help uh, uh, clarify and institute new uh, conditions or expectations for participants. Uh, and I am hoping to have more information about when that uh, new program will be expanded and how it will impact uh, restorative justice programming for young people also, because there is a very successful restorative justice program in San Francisco uh, facilitated through the Community Assessment and Referral Center called Make It Right. The Make It Right program has actually been uh, an evidence uh, of best practice there was research done with it, a controlled double-blind study that uh, demonstrated improvement on reducing recidivism for up to five years after young people successfully complete that program. 
And so I am hoping that we will uh, continue to build on those efforts in the city to make sure that young people have alternatives to detention. Uh, that is my report. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Yi. Uh, thank you very much, there, uh, Vice President uh, Carter Oberstone. I just want to report on uh, February 5th, I attended Visitation Valley Community Center. They had uh, their Lunar Year celebration. Uh, as you know, Visitation Valley is uh, down in the south, I guess the southeast corner, and it was great to see over 300 uh, residents and community members out there. I uh, was joined by uh, Lieutenant Don Anderson and his staff. Um, it was great to see them there. Uh, many of, there was other elected officials, city attorney David Chu was there, along with assistant uh, sheriff, um, I think it's uh, Carter, or Tanza Kea Carter. So it was great to have, it was the first time for me to see so many people out there and we had a great time. Um, on um, February 15th uh, in Chinatown, we will be having the AAPI Summit. Uh, in there will be the, uh, we have Mayor London Bree, City Attorney David Chu, uh, District Attorney Brooke Jenkins, and I think Chief William Scott will be there. Uh, we'll have interpretation. And the reason for our, for our meeting there is to introduce the Chinese community to our community liaison unit. Uh, many of the Chinese community members don't understand about the uh, community liaison unit and what they do. So we'll have translation out there and also uh, to talk about uh, the issues when they're a victim of crime and what do they do, what do they do and what service are available. But our uh, biggest problem over there is the Chinese community when crime happens to them, um, they tend not to report it. And they feel that they, it doesn't get, uh, there's nothing that happens uh, when they do report it. And I want to emphasize that uh, for our community, whether you're Chinese or residents of the city, it is very important to report the crime, ensure that these, hopefully, people that perpetrators are caught and uh, that they do not do this again, and, and hopefully everybody can come, and uh, that's my report there. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Walker. Thank you very much. Oh, uh, Julian, hey? I am um, moving forward with some of the DGOs. There was a meeting set up between um, DPA The officers um, to talk about concerns in the history of the idea of patrol specials and I'm sort of say it. if that if we want to um, go forward, what are the, the potential um, changes and different 
protocols they might use. Was it your that. idea? Um, there really is an interest. Um, I know that my fellow commissioners have gotten letters from the attorney representing some of the applicants for um, some of the beats and the those are going forward actually and the, the attorney is assisting with in the protocol currently as to see what recommendations get. But I'm requesting in my uh, purple folder that we go forward with these conversations with the public and the department so that we can present and dispense of um, an agenda item on the commission agenda for sometime within the next couple months. So I'm aiming to try and get more details so that we can have a good conversation about it and figure out how we want to move forward. So, um, and then also we are scheduled with DPA to have a conversation about potential technology. This is about camera management um, in general, mainly it's body worn, but there's an interest in general in um, how to maintain and, and control data on all these um, potential tools that, um, that technology is offering. So we're in conversation and um, we're gonna get the technology folks from the PD to look at it too and see if we can help have a conversation at this level about that because it does, it does you know, the, the public is concerned about it. We're all concerned about adding these tools untested so far and the more that we can do it in a way that's um, that presents access when needed um, as well as the the controlling the data and making sure that there's transparency and uh, security around it all I think it's really important to do it all at once so um, I'm looking forward to these discussions so that's in the next couple weeks so and my director that handles all of that stuff, Nicole Armstrong, is here tonight. So just Wonderful. if you have more questions, because she's the one that is the going to be there. <laughs> my point person for uh, the technology advancements that we've implemented in the past. She's the one that's going to coordinate to be able to walk through what the systems are, and then I think just from what we spoke about earlier today, the follow-up meeting that's with the department to yeah. see if it can be provided across. Yep. Absolutely. platforms to yeah. make sure that our devices and technology speak to each other. Yeah, I mean, all I, I you know, I've we've done ride-alongs in the cars, and I always hear a little, you know, the complaints about the the front seat of those cars is all like three different sets of Correct. technology, and you know, it's San Francisco. <laughs> so anyway, I'm looking forward to to working on that. Thank you, uh, Commissioner Yi. Uh, yeah, just briefly, I just want to thank uh, Commander Julian Ng for setting up the AAPI Summit um, February 15th. Thank you. All right, thanks for that. Um, Sergeant, could you take us to public comment? For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item four, commission reports, please approach the podium or press star three. And Vice President Carter Overstone, there are no public comments. Sergeant, could you please call item number nine? Line item nine, SFPD budget hearing for fiscal year 2024 to 2025. Discussion and possible action to approve SFPD budget. Discussion and possible action.
Good evening, Vice President Carter-Oberstone, Commissioners, Chief Lazar, Director Henderson, members of the public. My name is Patrick Leung. I'm the Chief Financial Officer for the San Francisco Police Department. Tonight, we will be presenting our proposed budget for fiscal year 24 and fiscal year 25. Uh, I want to start with a brief recap. The Mayor's Office instructions to departments are to reduce the adjusted general fund support by 5% in fiscal year 24 and 8% in fiscal year 25. This table illustrates the reductions the department has experienced over the last three budget years. In fiscal year 21, due to the COVID pandemic, all vacant positions were cut. In addition, the board has repeatedly cut overtime and academy resources, which has created long-lasting impacts to the department. We've yet to recover from these impacts of these reductions, and we're now facing significant staffing shortfalls, smaller academy classes, and at the same time, a growing number of members are eligible to retire in the upcoming years. We've seen the department lose 224 sworn positions and 10 professional staff positions over the last three budget years. And with the significant shortfalls in staffing, the department's strategies to help bridge this personnel deficit is through the hiring of Prop F retirees, the substituting for police service aides and other job classes where appropriate, and the use of overtime backfill to help supplement existing staffing. Overtime backfill to address chronic understaffing began in November 2021, and much of the cost was offset by position vacancies. Even with this offset, without a one-time COVID relief allocation, we would have ended last fiscal year at a deficit. When we look at our current personnel deficits at our, at our district stations, we can see a large gap between the recommended staffing levels for officers versus our actual officers on hand. Overtime backfill has helped reduce the portion of this gap by approximately 55 or 55 officers. And if we compare all ranks, overtime backfill has added the equivalent of 85 sworn FTEs. When we look at recruit hiring, we can see the number of recruits that have passed field training over the past six years is dwarfed by the number of officers that we've lost during the same period. With recent trends, academy, academies alone will not resolve our personnel deficit. And for the next several years, we'll have to rely upon a combination of overtime backfill and academies to help address our operational needs. In this slide is an updated slide from our previous presentation. The thing to note is the continued deterioration of response times for calls for service. This is another update in last year's approved budget for overtime. Uh, it was Last year's budget assumed for that for fiscal year 24, our overtime needs would be lower because of increased academy hires. That hasn't been realized, and we're now more dependent on overtime backfill than we were last year, and we've exhausted all position vacancy savings. The gap between our overtime budget versus our usage will need to be, will need to be resolved during the mayor's phase of the budget process. One of the largest contributors to our overtime is overtime backfill. Uh, two other big categories have been the Safe Shopper program and the tourism deployment. These are both city initiatives that, to help the recovery of the local economy and the tourism industries. 
looking at a study from the American Hotel and Lodging Association, this comparison of the top 50 U.S. markets, we can see that San Francisco is lagging in its recovery for business travel revenue, and it's far and fair worse than other top markets. Looking at tr leisure travel revenue, San Francisco is the only market with double-digit negative growth and is again lagging behind other top markets. Looking into fiscal year 24, we have approximately 297 sworn vacancies. Our current staffing is insufficient to meet service demands and we're recommending the position vacancies be used to hire Prop F retirees to use police service aids or other uh, civilian opportunities and for overtime backfill to address operational needs. Given that more sworn officers would be eligible to retire, if 100 officers separate, the city would need more than 8,600 applicants or 3,800 applicants in order to have 100 recruits successfully pass FTO and to be able to replace the officers who separate. And given the OT staffing needs required to prevent further deterioration in response to the to to prevent further deterioration in response times, to address the increase in our Part One crimes and the need to invest in academy classes. We're not recommending cuts in our personnel for fiscal year 24. When we look at our services budget, rent is the biggest category at 40%. IT services and licensing has seen significant increases. Our body-worn camera contract has increased by 140,000 in this year, and it's slated to increase by another 160,000 in fiscal year 24. We've seen price increases in our license renewals, ranging from 5% up to 30% in the most extreme cases. A cut in the services budget will be a result, will result in a step backward on our most recent reform efforts. Looking at our materials and supplies budget, it's remained flat for many years. The recent increase is attributable to an academy class being added. Some of the supply chain issues that we've seen and increases to raw material class costs have resulted in price increases in many areas. We've seen many of our supply staples, uniforms, crime lab supplies, ordnance, these have all increased in the last year. Some increases have reached high double digits. And when we look at our equipment, we've been averaging a 20-year replacement life cycle. The industry best practice is five years or 100,000 miles. We're well in excess of both of these marks. There's 2.9 million budgeted for FY24 to replace 64 vehicles that are well beyond the standard useful life. Given the significant number of vehicles and the extra repair maintenance for older vehicles, we're not recommending cutting the replacement vehicles. When we look at our department outlook for fiscal year 24, meeting the 5% reduction target would result in further deterioration to, to public safety. At a time when we're already short staffed, and we have more people eligible to leave, we'll need to rely upon a combination of Prop Fs, police services, and overtime to help fill this gap. At the same time, we need to help rebuild our sworn staffing through academies to prevent a future catastrophe in years to come. From our budget, we've been able to identify 1.2 million in cost reductions from project-based budget savings. Given the prior reductions that the department has already experienced, any additional cuts would impact our ability to hire future academy recruits. It would impact our ability to address public safety needs and our, our, and our ability to do our part in the recovery of the local economy. 
We've added some additional slides at the end of this presentation to provide more context. I know I've had to rush through the presentation, but if the commission has any questions with regards to our budget, I'd be more than happy to answer them. Commissioner Walker. Thank you. Um, thank you for the presentation. Um, there's a reference here to work orders from other departments, um, yes. especially in light of the collaborations that we're going to be, that we're engaged in with other departments, um, maybe with other priorities. I, I, I think we've talked before about providing training for the alchemy groups, the ambassador groups, mental health officers, all of those issues that aren't really law enforcement, but we're, in, we're pulled in because the other, the other agencies aren't out there necessarily, or we may need to partner. Is there a way to, to look at getting grant money to pay for some of those classes in our academy? I mean, I, I know that we were, there's one, one area of potentially cutting a class. I think that in light of the fact that so many people need training that may be a collaborative effort, is there ways of getting, reaching out and getting some of that those hours paid for with work orders, grants, that type of thing? Those are all areas that we actively look for. Okay. Um, typically for grant programs, there's state and federal programs. There's usually um, specific priorities that they target for. Um, training can usually be an element of those. We do actively look for new opportunities as they arise. and where we can fill gaps, we definitely reach out to our, um, to our units and to uh, the captains, commanders, all, all the command staff to look for additional opportunities where we can use uh, grant dollars to help supplement our existing budget. It seems like the federal um, budget discussions have included a lot of mental health funding um, and it is a huge need here. Um, so, yeah, I think that would be a really good area to, to look at as we're going through the collaborations. Yes. The, we did apply for one grant program that specifically um, addressed some of the mental health uh, issues that we've been encountering. And <clears throat> unfortunately for that uh, application, we didn't get the award. We did have good conversations with um, the granting agency. They provided us, us some feedback. And so when that next opportunity comes aboard, there's some... Uh, changes that we're going to make to the application and hopefully we'll be successful in this ne next round. And maybe to the, um, we're going through a lot of uh, reforms, the pretext stop changes, etc. Um, it seems like there should be some grant dollars available for especially IT upgrades and whatnot that can help, um, you know, if not traffic stops, then cameras and how to, you know, all of that um, is is something to look at right now, I think, as yeah. we're expanding our, our reform efforts here. To we're definitely looking for, forward to um, new grant opportunities opening. Sometimes there's a lag between when um, legislation is passed versus when grant funding becomes available. One, uh, one example would be the retail theft. Yeah. Uh, California, Governor Newsom, he passed, signed a, 
uh, a bill that helped set aside some money to, to combat retail theft. Uh, as of right now, we're still waiting for the state to release RFPs for us to apply for, but that, that's something that we're actively Great. looking for, and um, as well as some of the opportunity, other opportunities, such as the ones that you've just described. Great, thank you. Commissioner Byrne. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, just a few questions. Um, the first one, um, the the budget seems to, in other words, we're, what, 300 to 500 officers short? Correct. But when you look at the budget um, on page uh, 22, um, we're down to 1,400 and 51 officers, yet, yet we actually have more sergeants than we had in fiscal year 2020 when we had 1,686 officers. I mean, it's like if we're short, we seem to have plenty of chiefs but not enough Indians. I mean, do you get my point? That, that that the that the there's promotions going on and, and I understand that, but there's fewer officers for for people to command because we don't have enough. I'm I, just I, curious as to why. Like Commissioner, I'll, I'll speak to that and then um, Director Leon can speak to that as well. I think what we need to do is take a just look. Just like wait, wait a minute. Just, I'm sorry to interrupt. Just one second. I I, I know that Chief Burn. I mean uh, Commissioner Byrne did, didn't mean anything negative by it, but I think we just have to be very careful about how we refer to w w when we make those types of analogies that refer to a whole class oh, of people uh, I, in I, a I way that we have decided, I think, as a society that it's it's no longer appropriate to, to refer to them by. And I, I, you know, I want to call out this is not, and I know you didn't mean anything by it, but I just want to call out because I think some people are watching this may, may have taken it the wrong way or been offended by it understandably and so I just want to call I, it I, out I, that we're, we're definitely not you know condoning that, that, that type of um, using that type of, of language um, and I know that Commissioner Byrne didn't mean anything by it but just want no, to call well, it out. My point was that there there's seems to be plenty of bosses and not enough workers. Um, I guess that yeah that expression is outdated and I apologize. Uh, I didn't mean anything other than the comment that there appears to be many bosses and, and not enough workers. Commissioner, there's a couple of things that we're looking at. Uh, the first is that I think we need to look at who's actually resigned and retired and kind of look and look at that number to see where the decreases have been. For example, I have a resignation landed on my desk in the last 24 hours of an officer. So we have to look at uh, who's leaving. But, you know, the other part of that is as you know, the sergeants also have a dual purpose. They supervise on the street, and they also investigate crime. So regardless, we're very short in all these ranks, and you're, you're not going to see promotions in mass like we used to have. We're working around the, the graduations of recruits to make sure that we're not promoting more people than we have uh, officers for as far as who we're hiring and, and the numbers that we're hiring and, and, and graduating. Um, so we're, we're looking at that. But we, we need sergeants, too. And uh, homicide, robbery, 
special victims, et cetera. We need our investigators as well. So you're basically saying there was a shortage of sergeants in, uh, in fiscal 2020 then? Here's, here's the one thing that I would add. At least in this chart, when we talk about attrition within the budget system, it does not attribute any classes to it. So out of the 99 or even the, uh, in FY21 for those 200 positions, there's no distinguishment between which class is being reduced. It's just out of all of the total positions, like say for FY21, out of all the total positions, there's going to be a net reduction of approximately 234 positions. So for if you take your example for fiscal year 20, for those uh, 99 positions that are attritioned, uh, there's no, it doesn't make any distinguishment between classes. Some of them could be, it could be applied for officers, it could be applied for sergeants. It's merely um, set based on a, a dollar figure and the, the, how they arrive at the total number is really an average of um, all the salaries within the department and wh whatever that average comes out to be, that's kind of what that attrition total be means. Um. I, I, don't I, I, I don't understand. I mean, did we have 485 sergeants in fiscal 2020? So, so what, what I'm saying, if we, like, if we take just fiscal year 20, for that 485 sergeants, that's the number of sergeants within the budget system. That doesn't necessarily mean that's the number of positions that are budgeted. When we take into account attrition, we're reducing the total number of positions by 99, but it does not, when we, when we look at attrition, we don't make any distinguishment between sergeants or officers or any of the other classes. I, I understand that, but it, it, it appears, at least it appears to an outsider like me, that we got by with less sergeants in, in, in fiscal year 2020 uh, than we are now. I'm not, I'm not trying to discount but given the economic times that we're approaching uh, and the mayor's uh, suggest, the mayor's uh, priorities, uh, it, it, you know, the impression is given that the force is becoming top heavy, if um, at least to an outsider like me. And I've had discussions with other ex-police officers and they have made the same comment to me. If I, if I could just add that I mean, we see what the allocation number is here in FTE from all the years, but we really have to look at the numbers in the department because we, we are drastically short sergeants as well. We're not f at full strength at the lieutenant rank, not at the captain rank, um, and even at the command staff. I mean, we have some people that are out. We have acting positions. So we're really short in all those areas. And the last thing I'll say is, Often I talk about, Chief talks about, and others, how the sergeant's rank is so important when we develop new policies, when we have um, our use of force and all the other things that we put out, we need to have good supervision and oversight to support our officers. So that sergeant rank is really pivotal, and but, um, I just want to point that out. But, but you, un you understand my inarticulate comment that, that if, if, we're, if we're in this, um, what appears to be because of the decline uh, coming in uh, in San Francisco, it, it appears that, you know, at least a number of promotions, I understand that we're short, 
but it, it goes to the second question, which is that I understand you want to keep maintain the vehicle, and a lot of vehicles uh, are old. But the fact of the matter is, there's 500 less officers, so there's a need for less vehicles unless somehow non-sworn personnel are driving these vehicles and they need them. Um, I, I, if I can just respond yeah, to please. that part. So for at least a number of vehicles, for best practice, we typically have over at the district stations, two man cars. With short staffing, a lot of them are just having single, like they're right. one, one man cars. So Right, I, I, right. I've been on them, yeah. Right, and so you can, ha like if you had 100 officers, you would have 50 people drive, 50 people, two, 50 two unit, two person cars, right? But since we're significantly short staff, given 50 people, we would still have 50 vehicles, but they would all be one, like one man vehicles. There's no, there's no two person cars because of short staffing. So at least from the number of vehicles, having a reduction of staffing doesn't necessarily mean less but, vehicles being needed. At least it's been my experience that, yes, I've seen the one, man, the one person vehicles, but I've seen plenty of two person vehicles. Uh, so, and given the serious reduction, it just, it just seems strange to me that we need as many vehicles when we don't have as many officers. And therefore, I wonder why the budget has to stay the same. I understand the vehicles are old, so I understand the cut isn't going to be as dramatic. But it, it you know, basically, we're down, what, 20% or more of officers, which means, just roughly speaking, we would need 20% less vehicles. And yet, you want to keep the thing steady. And I'm, being, I'm, I'm doing my best to be conservative with the numbers. And it just seems, at least from a layperson's view, it just seems odd. That's all. Commissioner, my, if, I, if I may just add, you know, some of those vehicles, to your earlier point, need to be replaced. And I, I will say that when some of the, the officers, when they leave our department, sometimes they'll say, you know, we had to, I'm leaving this department because the equipment, because of the vehicles, because of the, the conditions of, of our equipment, et cetera. And we need to have cars that are safe. And I mean, I, I know you know all these things. So it doesn't equate that we're buying more vehicles to have more vehicles for more officers. The way that I see it also is we're buying more vehicles to replace many of the vehicles that no, we should have stopped I, driving 15 years ago. I understand that, but I... Still, I, I guess I don't see the accommodation made because there's fewer officers. And, and it, it goes to, uh, again, some of the, um, the administrative, the admi administrative stuff where fiscal 24 is the same, and yet we're dealing again with fewer officers. This is page 23. We're dealing again with fewer officers. So I'm, how would you say? I get that some of them are going to stay the same, but why would clerical stay the same if there's 20% less? Um, again, you've, you've made the explanation about automotive, and I understand the, as Commissioner um, Walker said about, you know, that we have to catch up with the information technology. Uh, legal has gone up in this budget for fiscal 24. So have we hired more lawyers or? Um, the, you know, it's gone up by uh, um, over a million and a half. 
for at least the legal positions, there was, those were associated with positions to comply with the SB 1421 mandates on, on transparency cases and. Okay, the, no, that that makes sense. I, but but again, I don't understand the clerical, uh, the payroll personnel, that those being the same when we're talking about a force that's 20% less. I, I I just, I don't know. I'm like you know, I'm not an accountant. Uh, uh, I'm not like you, but. Uh, Commissioner, I'd like to explain it. Yeah, we really need our support staff to, to support us and help us in many areas. As you know, even when the commission asks for reports or we get outside requests or, you know, we have to develop presentations. A lot of times over the years, sworn members have been doing a lot of the clerical work and we really have to work to get as many sworn people out of the building onto patrol so that we can have the support staff when we get new mandates, we get new laws, we got, like for now, we have the carry, carrying a concealed weapon, we're dealing with those applications, and now that's a whole other group of staff that we have to hire. And, you know, you think about payroll, when we spend X amount of overtime, all that has to be processed. Our payroll clerks are overworked right now because they have to do all this extra work to accommodate our payroll for our, for our overtime. So. We, I mean, in my opinion, and being in the department for so long, we need more support staff, and the police need the police officers need to do less. And I'm not saying that they're doing much of this, but if you look at other agencies comparable to us, I would venture to bet that they have more <coughs> professional staff for agencies that are our size and even smaller. So these are all important positions, in in, in our opinion, that we need. And then uh, just, just one final question. Of the 1,400, um, uh, whatever it is, over 1,400 officers, how many of them are subject like to Brady restrictions or otherwise not allowed out on patrol for whatever reason? Like what percentage of that? What, per what percentage of that of the 1,400? One moment. I, I have those numbers from last, uh, our last presentation. I just have to find my notes. Thank you. Yeah, it's a good question. Of course, it's This might be one that I'd have to look for. I, 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 Commissioner, can you re rephrase the question? It, I just want to make sure I understand Brady. it as well. Okay, it's so having to do with Brady. How many officers are on, on Brady? Well, well it's, it's more than just Brady. So at least I, I understand the Brady issue, but I understand anecdotally for talking to members of the police department that there are other <laughs> officers because of, um, you know, where they're, they're allowed to return to duty after an officer-involved uh, shooting where, at least from talking to a number of officers, 
where they're essentially still on desk duty and that they're not out on patrol, even though the chief has, uh, you know, has come before the commission and, and done the report and all that. And so my question is more than the Brady, it's, 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 it's those other officers who, at least from what is said, they should be allowed back on the streets. And yet what I antidotally have heard is that they're not. They're, they're, still, they're still doing some sort of desk duty. No, I haven't. And given the shortage of people on patrol, I'd like to know, uh, you know, beyond the Brady, how many, how many are uh, so that, in other words, what I'm getting at is I want to know the number, and I also want to encourage the department that those officers that are free to go back out on patrol, even if they were involved in a shooting, I don't hear reports that they're still on desk duty. If, if the chief says they're okay to go out and patrol, then I think they should be out in patrol, and they shouldn't be behind the desk because we were talking about shortages. So I have the numbers. Uh, hey, thank you. It, I'm sorry. There's... I talk too much. You get plenty of time to <laughs> look these things up. Yeah. It, uh, for sworn, there are 103. Uh, and those are, Bra those are Brady? Those are, yes. Those are uh, active sworn that were, uh, that are, uh, that are on the Brady. And what they, about, what about uh, the other ones that are on desk duty that really are free to go on patrol? Because there is a number of those, because I it. antidotally hear about it all the time. Yeah. So we, there's a document that we have that I don't have in front of me. It's actually on my desk that speaks to the number of personnel that are on disability. That's a, that's a significant right. number. That's a, probably the largest number we've seen. The number of officers that are modified duty, that are injured and working inside. And then there's a number of officers for disciplinary or other investigative reasons are not on the street. And unless someone in the room has it, we can definitely supply that with you to you. It's not a significant. Every one, everybody counts. Um, I'm gonna just venture. It's not a significant number, but we can get that number to you. And as the commission, you know, there's various reasons why um, individual officers haven't been rearmed and things like that. Well, but but at least what I've anecdotally heard from the officers is, is that they are rearmed, but they're not allowed to go out on. They're not allowed to go out on duty, and that, how would you say, given the shortage, really perturbs me, because if they're allowed to be out on duty, they should be on duty, unless there's some serious discipline thing. But some of them are, that I'm aware of involve officer-involved shootings, where the chief has come before the commission and said they're fine, and we've read the letter that they're fine. And yet the fact of the matter is, they're not out on duty, when they should be out on duty. I will say that in the last... I did this week alone, I may have signed three or four memorandums from individuals who have been, who have requested their firearm back, requested to be placed in the field and things like that. So that, that process is moving. I think that may have been a topic of a prior conversation here at the commission. Um, and we don't disagree with you. If a person is eligible and they're ready and they're fit and they're prepared, we need them on the street. And we're, I, I mean, I'm going to tell you, we're not loading up some desk job assignments uh, and I didn't, for the uh, sake of doing that. I mean, I've that's made all kinds are. of accusations over my life, but no, that is not one of them, and I don't want it to be construed as one. But, but at least when I've talked to members of the department, I, I'm aware of that, and I'm aware that they, we've seen that they're allowed to go back on duty, and yet 
I'm antidotally aware that they're, they're still doing desk jobs. And, and that, how would you say, that bothers me. That bothers me because of the shortage. And uh, I think that from an officer's point of view, that they want to be out on patrol. They don't want to be behind the desk. I think it's not good for morale because they've been cleared and yet they're still on desk duty. Uh, you know, that, how would you say, it's, it's just a lose-lose situation here. Yeah, so I, I would suggest offline that we go case by case and look at each one because we're always looking at all okay. the various positions right. and the individuals and, you know, me from operations is always saying we got to get more people on the street right. and I get a lot of support from Assistant Chief Flaherty and others. So I, I think it's a, we, we need to talk case by case okay. specific. I will, I will endeavor over the next couple thank, months to thank, thank you. you. Uh, Commissioner Yanez. Thank you, Vice President. Uh, Carter Overstone, uh, on page seven here, uh, you break out the hours and categories. And would you describe the difference between overtime, backfill, minimum staffing, which is one line item, and then the third one that indicates arrests and extended shifts? Yes. What is the difference between an overtime and an extended shift? So overtime backfill in this instance, we're categorizing it as um, someone, a, a member working overtime shift because of, of low staffing. For arrest extended shifts, it's specifically categorized in our payroll system as uh, pay code OT2, which corresponds to an officer who may make a, an arrest at the end of his shift and because of our department policies, they have to be able to complete the arrest report before they leave for the day. And so that overtime is specifically associated with that time. So it is in fact overtime though. And it, that amount would then be, uh, would contribute to the overtime total. Yes. In your budget. Ar arrests. Yes, arrest as a result of an extended shift because, or overtime because of an arrest that would extend their shift is results as, as part of that 43.4 million total. Got it. So, I mean, we continue to staff uh, and meet the needs of our department through overtime and various forms apparently, uh, which obviously is, is a need that we, we continue to have and so I mean, it makes sense. It's just didn't make sense to me how it was presented, but that, that clarifies it. Um, with regard to, I understand there's a formula, um, and I think this is somewhere along the lines of uh, Commissioner Burns' questions. The, the formula that determines staffing is based on calls for service, uh, which is usually a projection from the previous year in order for you to generate a budget recommendation for the next year, right? Um, Partially, yes. A lot, it's one part of one it. One element. Is, is the response to calls um, tiered with regard to staffing in any particular fashion that is different than that formula that you guys generate in order to to develop your budget? In other words, so priority call A, which we want an immediate response to, 
Uh, you know, you get the call and it gets wherever it is, Tenderloin Mission. Uh, you send an office or unit and it's a priority A call, so we're assuming it's there's some risk involved, there's maybe a weapon, who knows. Um, that unit will normally have two officers in an ideal situation. Mm -hmm. When you get a priority C call, is that the same response you're offering? So the call may just be for, I don't know, I want to make a police re an incident report because someone broke into my car. The formula dictates there's still two officers required for the same level of call? The, there's a couple aspects to it. So when developing the workload metric for the calls for service, it's differentiated between on-view calls versus public calls to 911. The, um, the priority is one thing, but there's also the element of um, the number of units that respond. So priority A calls, you would expect that there be backup units associated with those types of calls. Um, and it does also depend upon the call type. For, uh, a traffic stop would be different than like a, a homicide call. Um, we do work with the controller's office and with DM uh, when we're doing the staffing analysis on collecting the data, on uh, eliminating duplicates, trying to measure um, the workload in all those different instances. Uh, and it's different between different units. The workload metric for um, the district station, an officer at the district station is very different from the workload metric for investigations and et cetera. And so all, it's not just cause for service, it's also associated with the number of crimes that we would have to investigate. Some of them are also done at the district station. So um, it is a factor in it, but it's, there, there's a lot of other moving parts that feed into the equation of like the calculation of here's how many officers that, the, that we recommend based on all the metrics workload metrics. Commissioner, can I just add just briefly on the operations side? So, um, you know, Matrix did their report on staffing and analysis and they did that. They came, we came up with that uh, number of 2,182. Very comprehensive study on, on all of that. When I look at district stations, to Director Leung's point, it's, it's calls for service, self-initiated activity, First Amendment activity, community events, and um, the level of complicated calls, is it violent crime, et cetera. And we staff accordingly, but to just put it in simple, very simple terms for myself, the Mission District, for example, has six sectors geographically. You need 12 officers to at least cover the six sectors on duty at any given time. You need one person to run the station, that's 13. And then if you want a foot bean on Mission Street, you're at 15, and you want two more in the Castro, you're at 17. And you know, we just kind of fill in from there. And in most cases, there's only, you know, seven coming to work or eight. And then we look at that and say, okay, well, at minimum, we should staff the 911 calls with the cars. And that's where the backfill comes in to make sure that officers are safe, the community's safe. We have enough officers to do the work. And that's really kind of from the hip. That's how we we do things most often. The, the, the stations have been supplied with a minimum staffing number to say don't, please do not, we say it nicely but we mean it, do not fall below this number uh, for safety reasons and, and all that. And the last thing I'll say to answer your question is because for safety reasons we do partner everyone up, 
they will go to the low priority call together and take care of the burglary or the whatever the issue is for safety. Um, sometimes in those investigations, it leads to, oh, by the way, the person who broke into my car is standing over there or what have you. We have to take action. So the officers will do this together. I hope that ex explains that, a little bit helpful. how we stop. Um, and so it sounds like we're, you know, we're investing the resources in the areas of need based on what we have available. Um, and so that does result or answer the question that it's not a, a, a cookie cutter response to every call, even though they're in a perfect world, if we have all everyone staffed, there will always be two officers showing up. And so I'm just, I guess, encouraging us to analyze, you know, the possibility for certain calls, just the way that we've deprioritized certain, you know, interactions. And we have determined that as a city, we will not send officers for homelessness or certain issues. I feel that there are certain calls that can that demand less of a response. And obviously you can't control for every factor, but I think that's, that's something to look at continuing, uh, moving forward, given the constraints that we're gonna have in our budgeting, um, considering the economy and all the projections, right? So just a little, uh, it was helpful for my clarification. And then I guess the last question I would ask, um, in addition to tier responses, since we do have these outdated vehicles, and we will be, I'm assuming, purchasing new vehicles. Are we going to be purchasing green vehicles, electric vehicles? Is there any conversation about doing something to save on, you know, the front end or the back end? I don't know which end is going to be uh, on all the uh, gas costs. That is. So we do work with Central Shops and we do work with um, the, also the mayor's office on the types of vehicles that, uh, that make it into the budget. Part of it is a cost discussion. Part of it is uh, there, there are some vehicles that they don't have electric versions of them. Um, we have a need for some passenger vans. There, there aren't any electrical versions of like 12, 15 passenger vans. Um, but, and in those instances, we do try to look for uh, at least hybrid versions. Um, within the budget process, we work with central shops. We work with Office of Contracts Association. They do have term contracts that the city has where we've already pre-negotiated what types of vehicles that departments can purchase outright. Um, and from those vehicles, we try to make a selection that is uh, electrified first, given uh, if it's able to meet operational needs, but also if it's, we're able to have the infrastructure to charge them. Um, and then at the very least, we, we do try to look for at least the hybrid versions. And that's been the case for at least two years. Great, thank you. <clears throat> Commissioner Yi. Thank you very much, um, Vice President Carter Obasan. Uh, on page 11, um, you talk about uh, rent comprising of 40% for service budget. I'm just curious of uh, where's the rent going to? Is, is it something that we're signing for a long-term lease or a short-term lease? Well most of them are long-term leases. Uh, the leases for the city, the Department of Real Estate, they help negotiate all the leases on behalf of all the departments. Um, in this category, these are, these are representative of leases that we make payments directly to uh, the owner of the building. But uh, as far as the negotiation of the rents, it's typically done by real estate on behalf of the department. 
Um, those are typically long-term leases. There's uh, the major one that we, the example that we gave during the last presentation for DeHaro Street, that one, that lease agreement was for 10 years. Okay. Um, the second question I had was uh, going back to, I guess, recruitment and looking at this is a big item for us. We don't, we're short on staff and is wondering if there's allocations of funding to hire a professional recruiter. So uh, in this year's budget, there was a recruiter position that was added and we did hire them about a month and a half ago. So they are actively working for us and um, they're helping us with some of our, uh, helping improve some of our initiatives. Uh, there's one that we're working on trying to bring in an instructor to help with academies to take the, uh, the post tests. Um, there's other budget items that are intended to help our, our recruitment efforts. One of them is for um, the, uh, uh, I can't remember what you call it. Uh, it. It's funding for a software solution to help eliminate some of the bot bottlenecks in our, recruit in our application process. So right now, we're relying upon very much a manual process, and it's, it doesn't provide a lot of feedback to, the, to applicants that apply. And we are also taking a long time from when the person actually applies to when they're actually able to get into the academy. That's another one that we're kind of working on. We have um, conversations with the city attorney on a product solution that we're hopeful to, uh, to help with, the, with, with that item. So how long had you had this bottleneck in this in the system? Quite some time. I mean, the, with our recruitment, a lot of it is the the investigators that we have that are 960s, but many of the documentation standards that we have on processing applicants, they're for most part it's more manual based and it takes more effort, um, and it also is also time consuming. So. Uh, one of the areas that we're exploring, at least in our recruitment and retention unit, is product software solutions that can help us achieve some efficiencies and reduce the time that it takes for an applicant to become to, to be processed. So, looking at the bottleneck, uh, have you hitting the top and coming down on on the time response on the recruits applications? For for at least that part, we're still. Our process is still the same at this point. Um, we're trying to enter into an agreement with uh, the software vendor, uh, and that's still ongoing. But we're, we're hopeful that we can um, finalize that contract and to get some okay to get some help on this area. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Director Leung. Just two quick questions for me. Um, I mean, one one comment and one question. I, I will say that the issue of uh, officers assigned to administrative duty, the intersection with that, and Brady, um, the question that was asked about how many folks on admin duty who could be on patrol that aren't on patrol, these questions do come up regularly, particularly in the budget process, but also in other contexts. And I would say that we 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 often get an answer of, we'll, we'll get the numbers for you later. And um, 
I think it was a year ago, roughly, that we went into closed session, came out of closed session, and then Director Henderson read off, like, Director Henderson and his team identified in the transcripts all of the times this exact question had been asked, and the answer we always get is we'll circle back with the numbers. Um, not always in the budget process, but often sure. in budget. Um, I, I think it really would be helpful to, when we have these presentations to have those numbers ready and just anticipate that this is something that commissioners have, have shown an interest in, so that, that's just a comment for future presentations. Um, one substantive, substantive question on page 21. Um, I just wanted to ask about the department's plans for civilianization. Um, my understanding is that you know this was a priority. This is something that we want to, we want to do. When I look at the numbers, you know, fiscal year 2020, you know, roughly you know the ratio from civilian FTEs to sworn FTEs is 25 percent, and that steadily creeps up to 30 percent for the 2023-2024 projections, um, which doesn't strike me as particularly aggressive. Um, and I'm just curious if there's anything else that you can, any other information you can provide the commission about how the department is thinking about civilianization. For leases, for civilianization, I think part of the difficulty is that there's an unlimited number of resource needs and there's a finite number of budget dollars that are available. So each year during the budget process, we do work with the mayor's office to try to prioritize what positions would make the most impact. Um, and sometimes we're successful in that respect, sometimes we're not. One avenue that doesn't help us is when we look at our personnel budget, specifically when we have overtime, and that routinely gets cut, when we're trying to hire for those positions and we're over budget because of overtime, uh, typically what happens is if a department is slated to, to uh, have a deficit in their budget, the controller's office would typically place a freeze on hiring. Uh, we've experienced that two years ago. We've experienced it last year, and we're going to experience it sometime this year. And what that, what that really, how that really impacts civilianization is that when those holes are put in place, we're not able to make those hires. And at the time when we get to toward the end of the year, when we're working with the BLA on the budget process, they go and look at the positions like, oh, you're not using them. And usually the recommendation when they get to the board level is that, well, you can start adding attrition to the department because they're not making use of those positions. And that really makes, brings us further back. So in terms of position, it has been a, a little bit of a struggle. Um, we do have to balance the resources that we have with the operational needs. Uh, and at least for the, the civilianization positions, it, it is somewhat of a struggle on get, getting the number of positions that we would like versus having the budget to do so. All right, I will say that that doesn't necessarily, that answer is not necessarily intuitive to me that a hiring freeze would make it look like we are underutilizing our current civilian staff and it's also not clear to me that budget pressures would make it harder since civilianizing is generally a budget savings net net. Um, so, it, you know, so I, I, you know, 
these projections for 2023-2024, you're, you're saying now that they're low because you anticipate not getting budget allocation for them? or So there's several personnel constraints for th th that we have for next year. One of them is obviously the sworn staffing. The other one is overtime. For when we look at last year and the year before, when we have, when we've over exceeded on our overtime budget, and overtime budget is another category within personnel. When we go over on those categories, it does impact our ability to make any kind of hires. So we may have the positions on paper, but if there's no budget to help support those positions, those hires aren't going to come through. Um, Going to, into next fiscal year, our most immediate concern is the sworn staffing on our academies, and secondarily because we're significantly short staff on trying to address, trying to reconcile the overtime budget versus kind of um, how we're currently using it. There's a significant gap between what we're budgeted for versus the overtime need. All right, uh, thank you, Director Leung. I don't see anyone else in the queue. Could I just ask from our city, our deputy city attorney, just clarification on what the vote is? This is a recommendation to the board vote. Um, yeah, under the charter, you have an obligation to pass a budget. Um, so in the past, there's been some um, commissions that have uh, just moved it along um, for with no vote, but generally speaking, there has been a vote. But and it is a recommendation, just to make that It's clear. a recommendation. Okay, that's, that, that was it. Okay, great. Thanks so much. Um, is, is there a motion? So moved. I move to approve the budget as proposed. Recommend. 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 Yeah. Is that what I need to say? Sounds per perfect. Um, uh, is there a second? I'll second. Members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item 10, or excuse me, line item 9, please um, push the podium or press star 3 now. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. After listening to this, I wouldn't have approved this budget um, for the simple fact that they're ordering cars for police that are not that are not um, even here yet. Um, I'm sort of concerned because they keep saying short staff, and when they come out and see us, they say short staff. But then Commissioner Byrne mentions there's a lot of charges, so the numbers are not adding up. It really isn't, and we're going into a, a fiscal crisis. We're going into a recession. And I don't think it's fair to us San Franciscans. I think you really need to go back and look over the budget again, and we need some honesty. Um, why are you ordering for cars? And I, I see all the newer cars. So where are all these older cars? What districts are they in? Because in my district, I see a bunch of new Ford whatever. Um, we don't have money to waste. And I don't appreciate that they come and lie to you all about um, that they need cars that they don't, or talking about 
that um, there's people sitting at the desk who want to come back to work um, when there's a lot of officers who are out because of COVID, even though our mayor says COVID is out over. So I'm sort of confused here. I wouldn't approve this budget at all. Thank you. Vice President Carter Oberstone, that is the end of public comment. Thanks, Sergeant. Could you call the roll, please? On the motion to approve the budget, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Oberstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Oberstone is yes. You have six yeses. Line item 10, DPA budget presentation, fiscal year 2024 to 2025, discussion. At this time, if we could, uh, oh, she's already there. This is our director of operations, Nicole Armstrong, with the presentation. Good evening, commissioners. Um, as, Paul, as Director Henderson said, my name is Nicole Armstrong. I'm the Director of Operations at uh, DPA. also do technology and a number of, number of other things at our office. Uh, you know, we try to make things work the best of our ability. So I'm here today to talk about our budget proposal for uh, our next year budget. All right, as was previously discussed in the mayor's budget, or in the SFPD's budget, uh, the mayor's budget proposal for this, I'm going to go over here, I apologize. Um, really focuses on some cuts that we're going to have to make in the in the next two years, um, and you know for DPA we are a very small agency. I'm going to skip ahead to one slide. Apologize. Um, I just kind of want to look at this. So our budget overall is a very small budget. Um, you know we have about nine million dollars right now, which is a cut for the past couple years. And as you can see, it our real budget and the meat and potatoes of ours is salary and fringe, um, and that's the primary of it. And as we continue to work and do our, our efforts at, the, at DPA, it really starts to impact us as we have these cuts as they, as they go on. Now, one of the things I want to show you and give you like a preview, because we will be back to do our annual report eventually, is to talk about our preliminary data that we're doing and to let you know that we continue to see cases over, seven, over 700 cases on an annual basis at DPA. We're continuing to do policy work. We have 142 recommendations, 36, 23 DGOs. We've investigated 1,710 allegations. That means we have to go in and identify and do research for all of these things, and we closed 720 complaints, and our sustained rate is up. This is the kind of work we're doing at DPA, and this is only a fraction of what it is, but we're doing it on a really limited budget. Um, and so what that really focuses on when we look at that is what is our nut and bolts that we, we are doing? And as I said before, and I wanted to introduce that, you know, at what my role is at DPA is because we wear a lot of hats because we have such a small budget. You know, our staff is doing multiple things and we're doing this work and we're working really hard. And our priorities to re are really to make sure this is done with what budget we have with limited cuts that we can do. We wanna make sure that we're providing the reports and analytics. We wanna make sure that our technology is using a creative approach. You know, as I presented earlier this year, I think we talked about the complaint portal. We'll start looking at new ways of using funds that are available through the city without adding additional costs because adding additional costs is what we don't want to do, but there are going to be some times that we do. 
We also need to look at outreach. How do we communicate with the community? You know, we need to make sure we have funds and the ability to go out and do advertisement to let people know that we're here. If people don't know DPA exists and doesn't know that they have this resource, they're not going to be able to make these complaints and, and it might come on deaf ears. And of course, we want to make sure our workforce is really diverse with all of our hires that we continue to make at DPA. We can turn, continue to make sure that we have a continued diverse workforce with our investigators, our attorneys, our support staff. You got to meet some of ours today. Um, you know, we really try hard to make sure we have these things available to our staff. And as I said, going back to the slide, is if you look at it, we really don't have a lot of funds to support an operation staff. You know, it really is focusing on salary and fringe and making sure we have people in these seats. You know, our non-personnel services is, is not even 500,000. Our materials and supplies is really low. Um, and this is due to some continued cuts over the, from the pandemic and going forward. Uh, so this is what the Mayor's Budget Office asked us to cut this year, and I'm focusing on, on what's coming up in the future right now because we're going to work on getting our attrition back from the years before. But also, you know, I want you to see, so it's 368000 for this first year, which might seem like a small number, but I already told you that half of our material supplies and our programmatic funds, I mean, that's actually quite a bit of money out of our budget when 90 or 85% of it is, is our fringe and salary benefits. Um, our goal this year is to really work on hiring one new position and changing one position from a temp position to a permanent position. So we're not really working on asking for too much and we're really focusing on how we can meet the needs of the community, the commission and everyone through each step that we take in order to make sure that our salary and so our increased revenue or our increased budget is reduced as much as we can. Uh, so these are some of our proposed changes that we're really focusing on this year. And as you can see, we're not, we are not asking for a lot. You know, so I don't want anybody to go, oh, they're asking for a lot, but we're not. You can see we're asking for an increase of about $20,000 for our materials and supplies. That's for us to do um, professional services to computers, to our, uh, to be able to get subject matter experts, to be able to do just general things that you do in an investigation in a case. Uh, increase our technology costs. So our technology that we've had has never actually been added into our budget. That means our case management system, our the sales force, our, any of our computer programs we use has never actually been added into our budget. So we've been finding ways using salary savings, using all these different ways to try to make these ends meet. But because of the increased cost of technology, we're unable to do that in the future. Uh, for example, you know, some of the programs went from 10,000 last year to 20,000. And I mean, it's like, so we try to renegotiate and we get them to lower it down to like 12,000. We're like, we're a small agency, help us and they will lower it down for us, but we can't keep doing that, and we need to find a way to make it so our, our budget is stable and that we're able to effectively complete our jobs, not just in a creative way, but in an effective way. Um, and you'll see that there's a, a drop in the 104 salary and benefits, um, which is different from the previous slide, and that's because we're adding that one other position, so it drops down with that, uh, that proposed changes. All right, so these are the positions we're adding. Uh, we're going to be asking for a 1091 IT apprentice. So instead of asking for somebody that's already trained, which sounds really crazy, we actually want to help the city. So the city's trying to do this new method, new approach to where they're trying to bring in new apprentices to work on the IT in the, in the, for the entire city because there's been a really high attrition of DT professionals. And so they brought it, so they're starting this new program. And instead of starting from scratch, we're trying to develop a new, we're trying to use the new city program to save money for the city while helping train and develop new people. Um, and also, we're trying to change our 1823, which is our outreach coordinator. 
from a temp position, which it is right now, to a permanent position because outreach coordinating is critical for DPA. We need to make sure we're effectively communicating with the community as well as working on media, press releases, marketing. We need to make sure we're seen and we're making make sure that the community is heard. Um, so we've also asked for some proposed technology costs. As I said, I'm the tech person. I love technology and I love finding new efficient ways to do things in our office. Um, one of the things that we've done is we actually digitized all of our way our sustain reports go out. So we've now saved thousands of dollars at DPA by changing it from paper copies that we used to hand deliver to SFPD to now doing all electron electronically transfers. Um, we're always trying to you know, do our best for the environment while saving money. So these, what, we, what our new proposed technology cost is right now, we have case files from 1983 at DPA and they are paper copies. That is a lot of case files that we're storing. So we have a proposal to be able to get, to digitize all of our DPA case files and be able to make it so we can make them and put them all on a CD using GRM. Um, we did an estimate of how much that would cost for us to do in-house. It's about $100,000 more and about six years longer. So this project would take about six months with GRM, so we proposed it to the city through the COIT project. And we've also working on doing uh, an SFPD and DPA case tracking. So one of the things that we find to be a, a problem with discipline tracking with DPA and SFPD is that our information doesn't talk. You know, so we have one system, they have another system they're developing and it's gonna take years. And so we wanna anticipate that and start working on a way to be able to share that data so it's in a real-time form, live documents, desktop that's actually shared by DPA and SFPD so that way this information can be shared in a really great way and make it so it's fast and helps us meet all of our needs for SB 1421, SB 2, sorry, Senate Bill 2 for those, um, and really wanna make sure that we comply with all the new reg, uh, California legislation that comes out. So let me be honest. So if we do reductions, and it's, let's be honest, it's high probability that there is reductions. Um, because we have an increased caseload, this means that it's gonna take longer for us to complete cases. If we have fewer people to help us do this work, we have fewer staff, fewer support, or the, it's gonna take us longer to finish these positions or to fill these, uh, to work on the cases, I apologize. Um, you know, video evidence continues to increase um, the length of time it takes us to investigate. We really believe in investigative sufficiency at DPA. We're not gonna cut corners, so it's gonna take us a little bit longer. We're still gonna meet all of our mandated deadlines, but we're gonna keep, but it's gonna take longer. Same with our Senate Bill 1421 disclosures. Things are gonna slow down because we need funds to be able to do this. We don't have funds for material and supplies for us to get digitized records and do things. It's gonna delay it. Um, and audit delays. If, you know, part of the positions that we wanna fill are for audit positions. If we don't have those positions, the positions and the money to be able to fill those positions, then we're not able to actually keep moving audits forward in a faster pace. So really what our whole budget is focusing on is asking for some more money, but focusing in a way that makes it us more effective and more efficient with what we do. We don't want to do things that are necessarily going to raise the budget to a high level where we're competing against other people, but when you look at what, D, what SFPD's budget is and you look at DPA's budget, you can see that we are a fraction of it. And we're still doing the work every day. Um, so our goal really is to try to get a little bit more so that way we can work efficiently, but not, without, but not with hurting the budget for the city. Any questions? Thank you so much for that succinct presentation. Um, no, no questions for me, just wanted to make a comment that you know it's just been evident to me during my time on the commission you know, that it's just been impressive the quantity and quality of work that DBA, DPA is, is able to do with 
a very lean staff and everyone that I've interacted with um, is working really, really hard. And so I, I hope that the agency gets the, 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 the money that it needs to, to continue furthering its important mission um, and to frankly retain the people who are doing great work now who may you know be understandably burned out. Um, so thanks for the presentation and, and you know hope that DPA can get the resources it needs to do do its important work. Um, Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you, Vice President Carter Oberstone. I definitely echo that sentiment as well. I know in the last, I guess it's now two or three years, DPA has taken on additional responsibilities with respect to providing oversight to the Sheriff's Department pursuant to an MOU. Did that come with, how does that show up in the budget? Did that come with additional resources to that work? Because it, it should. Are you doing more work? with well, yeah, like, like what is the budgetary impact of that? I'm sure Director Anderson has something to say. Well, rather than share with you my anecdotal commentary from the side, I'll let, allow Nicole to answer with the numbers and then summarize my perspective. Okay, so uh, we are receiving some funds for the sheriff works that we're doing. Now. <laughs> we previously were not receiving any. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, some of the funding for it. Last year we did negotiate with the Sheriff's Department of Accountability slash OIG to be able to receive some funds with the mayor's office. Um, instructions so that way we can get some money back for the work we do um, and have done and we will continue to do uh, part of our duties as we've mentioned is wearing many hats is right now because the SDA slash OIG only hat we're not really sure the name officially it's two different places it says two different things so um, so we're actually helping them do all of their budget so I'm actually doing two budgets this year we're doing two presentations for different commissions we're going forward and we're doing double the work uh, to make sure that it gets done. Our billing is based on the work we do. So it's an hourly rate based on, if I was doing a sheriff thing, I would bill for my hours and I'm doing it same way that we bill anything. Um, we're not asking for anything additionally than just what our, our pay is um, for the work we do. We do it for our investigators and attorney, um, our budget analyst, our tech person and myself, and then um, some of the exec staff that are assisting on writing MOUs or, or, or not doing different projects and things, uh, we do that. And then also we have a uh, agreement for one of the positions for uh, uh, Marshall Kine, who is working, uh, doing the, the work for the Sheriff's Department with DPA. Um, so, cause there, he has to work for us, so we get that money to pay for his position. Thank you, that's, that's for help. So as I understand it then, you're receiving money now and going forward, but for work that was previously done, you, would in some ways categorize that as unreimbursed? Yes. The okay. Lord's work, I believe, is. <laughs> we wanted to make sure the work got done. That was what was key to us. We, we weren't able to negotiate a memo with you before, but we really believe under Director Henderson's leadership that the job matters, our investigations are really important. What we do makes a difference. And I really believe that I was an investigator for years and a federal agent. I'm in this job because I love it. And we know we don't get paid a lot, and we know what we do, you know, doesn't receive a lot of, you know, recognition at all. Um, but we're willing to do the work because we, we believe in it. And sheriff investigations need to be done just the same as SFPD. So yes, we didn't get the money. We're working for it now, but um, it's it's the work that matters. Uh, absolutely. Is there a hope that long term, now that you have this in place, and you know, some costs will necessarily inert to the benefit of the agency, that that might 
help with some of the budgetary pressure that you're now also assisting with, with sheriff's work? I mean, it does help a little bit with our stuff, but at the same time, we're doing all the work for it. Um, and really, we're, right now, what we're waiting or hope we're waiting for is an IG to be hired for the SDA, um, so that way they can start hiring. Because although yes, money is great, that also means that we're doing double the work. Um, and you know, we 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 have a staff of 47 people, operation staff about five five people total. Uh, so it's it's a lot of work. We appreciate the money; it's great, it's nice, but. We would really like the SDA to be stood up so that way they can take on that load themselves and be able to effectively investigate the things. Yeah, that actually leads to my next question. Is To, to the extent you know, because I know when, when initially arrangements were made with the Sheriff's Department, they were really on a case-by-case -case basis. Is the long-term plan for DPA to, be, to serve as, as that agency? Or once there's an IG hired, are they going to stand at their own agency long-term? Do you not know what's... What's the outlook of that going forward, long term? Yeah, I mean, right now it's still case by case, uh, and it will stay case by case. The commission now uh, serves in an oversight capacity. It's unfortunately not as uh, collaborative and as seamless <laughs> an integration as we have with the police commission and the work that's being done at DPA, and so those decisions aren't for DPA to make. Those decisions are for... Uh, the Board of Supervisors or the Mayor's Office and or the Commissioners to make. Our role is trying to do the best job that we can do in conducting the investigations and presenting our work as defined by the LOU that we are sticking with. And for now, it's essentially a contractual obligation that, as you alluded to, heretofore had been unpaid for a period of time. Uh, but is now being compensated literally hourly by hourly as we continue to do the work. And then what happens next will be defined by outside agencies, not by DPA specifically, who will make their own assessment. But that's part of why the budget process is so important and understanding where the dollars are going and what is being paid for compared to what the outcome is. And so I, that's a long way of answering the question of we aren't going to answer that question and we aren't the ones that determine what the ultimate shape will look like beyond just the LOU that we will continue to satisfy as long as we're able. Got it. Thank you, Ms. Armstrong. Thank you, Director Henderson. That's all. Uh, Director Henderson. Yeah, I just had a, a small comment just overall for the budget in terms of the approach of what people are hearing this year. It's a little bit different and a little bit more in depth because uh, Nicole and DPA wanted to make sure that people understood a little bit more about how the dollars are being spent and what it was going to. So this is this presentation, I think, was more informative uh, and understanding about how the budget operates uh, than in past years when we made the presentation. But for me, the distinct difference is understanding the difference between seeing how uh, DPA sustains itself versus what the potential is to Im continue improving and the costs associated with those improvements. That's what we tried to present to make sure that you had a broad understanding for. I just, in case that was lost, wanted to point it out, and that's why the presentation was a little bit different than you've seen in past years, even though they were the exact same numbers, but what we've tried to do was bring more analysis to those numbers to make an understand to make a presentation that was more palatable or understandable to a broad audience. So that, that's all. Thank you for the presentation.
problem. Great. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Walker. I think that that's thank you. You need to be retrained. Um, I like the concept of partnering with the department because it it's um, I've, I had a lot of experience between the, the planning department and the building department who all deal with the same issues, yeah. but had totally separate yeah. data systems and systems and. It's so ineffective because it does increase the man hours, essentially, that you're working, looking for things. And so I, I really encourage the department and DPA to really work together on some of this stuff. I mean, as we're talking about um, technology to um, manage the data around camera collection and and charting it and doing all that stuff. I mean, that's necessary in both departments and the sheriff's department who are now going to be using cameras in the jail. So, you know, there's a lot of technology that can be shared and I don't know how that is between departments, whether we bring in the city's IT department or whatever, but it's, it just doesn't make any sense to keep, you know, sort of siloing when we're all working with the same data. If I can respond to that, yeah. uh, and maybe it might be a project for the commission to oversee an analysis or an, an independent analysis where all of us come together to yeah. figure out what information gets shared, how it gets shared, which different systems they use, and yep. what efficiencies can be built into the ongoing and recent contracts related to technology. And to anything build, new that we're doing. That's yeah. what I'm saying, yeah. to build out institutional solutions to address those concerns. That would be... Because it's really a case where a lot of the technology is just being created. And so it's sort of like, you know, I look at this as if we're involved with partners out in the private sector who want to right. license with us, let's benefit so that it pays some of our costs. You know, I mean, it's. And those efficiencies do happen, but they're case by case. And those are internal efficiencies from DPA saying, let's make sure that this information can be shared with the department yeah. or the department saying let's make sure that this information is translatable to dpa and or to the public which is always the third unspoken recipient yeah, of the absolutely. information and if I you're if you're creating it i mean it's all new technology especially like camera data collection and management you can control who gets to see what when. And those best practices already exist, just yeah. to be clear. Yeah. So these don't have to be just aspirational to be if we're moving towards them, but these efficiencies, in my opinion, don't get f and don't become presented or get created without intentionality. Yes, so. totally. I think it's a good intention, so. The collaboration is key with us, um, especially as we develop new technology. That's the best time to do it. Um, Exactly. It's it's so key. Um, we, we've actually had some conversations with the department about making sure that we have the ability to have our systems talk because it's not just about sharing the information. It's also about reducing error. Yeah. When you have inputs of error from system A, system B, and system C, it means a person has to input that data and it makes it so you have error across the board. And the goal at the end of the day is to have one person entering that data, have it shared so we can reduce that. Yep. Um, and reduce the amount of time because I, I know the department spends so much time on the discipline data yeah. and making sure these excels are, are beautiful and wonderful. 
But if we just get our systems to talk, then we won't have to create the Excels. We won't have to do these. We can make it so we have dashboards and things that are easier. And that's really what the goal of the project is that we propose is find a way for us to be able to work together, especially while um, SFP is making sure that their new case management systems up and working. We want to find a solution. Make it so we can work sooner and make it work better for all of us because none of us have enough time. Our budgets are all getting cut. If we can work together to make a solution, why not do it? And it does seem like it, it takes away man hours. It does. The, the more efficient you can be with data. It, it, it does. Uh, I can tell you I do most, a lot of the data in our office. It takes a lot of time. Um, that's why we create these inefficiencies that we can using the programs that the city pays for us, you know, just Microsoft Excel, I mean, just the basic ones. If we can use these to create new efficiencies, and we have across our office, you can ask Director Henderson and Sarah Hawkins. They hate when I say, oh, I've got a new technology for you. Oh, I've got a new thing. Uh, but they're so important to learn to make it better, to make it more efficient, and to get rid of paper. Yep. So. I will say that coming up with those solutions and having that intentionality now is more important than later, because the challenges that we're discussing right now are not getting smaller and they're not getting easier. And as we continue both with budget cuts and demand specifically related to transparency, data analysis, and data analysis, because beyond just collecting the information, it has to be analyzed and shared, those problems are only gonna continue to get bigger and larger, even with new legislation that redefines how data has to be either collected and or shared, let alone analyzed. It just Having the conversation and beginning the solutions now, I think, is easier and better, especially when we're talking about uh, potential budget cuts and what those impacts are going to be. Great. Thank you. Commissioner Yanez. Thank you, Vice President. Uh, Carter Oberstone, and I wasn't going to chime in, but I just have to congratulate you on all the wonderful work you do on a shoestring budget. I know that you're able to leverage relationships and obtain freebies left and right, but, um, you know, I fully support... <laughs> I fully support uh, your efforts to expand. I mean, you do uh, incredible work, and as uh, has, been has been stated already, your staff are also professional. I don't know how they manage uh, multiple uh, matters and, and are just effective and efficient. Um, so thank you. But this brought up a question now that we're talking about sharing information, and I know that when I first got on the commission, it was a little bit of a challenge to figure out how do you compare apples to apples when you're working with oranges and I have, I don't know, something else that I'm working with, whatever I can find at the market. Now that we are adopting what I envision is gonna be an improved uh, early intervention system, this benchmark system, I know that Janelle is very, very present at these, in these uh, spaces, but I wanna know whether there is interface and, and is this uh, introduction or rollout gonna involve any partnership with your department to ensure that you have access to that information? Because a lot of it is gonna rely on reports that your agency is generating. Uh, so we have had some discussions with the department, um, and to be honest, they're, they're, they're quite limited because of where Benchmark is right now with the development. So the main thing that we have to do, and as was relayed, is, is we have to make sure the information that can be shared across it match the fields and the information that you're sharing. So, sorry, I'm going to get like, so I have to use my hands, my hand talker. Uh, so our database has fields that we create where we input information into it. We have to make sure those fields, whatever it is, matches the same fields or have fields built in on benchmark side. 
Um, and so part of that's in this development process. And so we've actually started talking to the department about getting access or being able to create some dashboards. But um, we're only in the preliminary stages still, where we've said we want to help, we want to do these things. Um, but we've been told that they're, they're pretty far away from being able to create anything right now. So we are basically said, let's put it on hold until we figure out what fields we're going to be able to create and have in our system. Because we can't connect our fields to their fields until they, they know what fields they have. Um, which is why we are actually, we proposed that SFPD DPA one because that would allow us to create something through Salesforce um, that we could actually connect. And I know I give a, a, an estimate of eight months, but I'm pretty sure we could have it created in about three, four months. Um, but that would give us the ability in the meantime to be able to connect some of our data and allow us to get ready for whenever benchmarks prepared. Um, we were told that we will get some access to benchmark. What that is, I'm not really sure. Um, so we'll see in the future, hopefully, as the talks continue. But matching those fields and getting that information right now in this architectural stage is key. But since you asked and brought it up, the issue is what will be available is something different than what can be shared and what we can receive. And as you recall, I had asked specifically for that budget to be included in the technology development when the department was getting the benchmark contract to ask for there to be a bridge so that the information could be shared. And to date, my understanding is that we still don't have a budget for that. So even after it's built, all of the supplemental supplies or supplemental build out that has to be done on the DPA side is unfunded. There's no budget for that, unless I'm missing something. No, we don't have any budget for that Correct. at this time. So well, it's still, a we're moving in, you know. Would you, AC Lassar, would you have any information about how to support the the uh, addressing this budget gap that could potentially impair our ability to create more transparency. I think more thought needs to be put into it. Yeah. I I encourage us to I think even itemize this. I mean we I have requested that we have a benchmarks presentation. Uh, I know that the implementation. Uh, kind of timeline has been pushed back a little bit that, that shouldn't interfere with our ability to have this conversation um, as this system is still being built out. So I am hoping that we can get that agendized pretty soon and hopefully you can be present to inform uh, what fields we can create and what we can push for on Janelle and my end as we're developing the DGO to respond to the new system. And to be clear, we're excited about benchmark at DPA, and it does reflect some of the best practices in terms of data collection and represents some of the best practices in terms of data dissemination. But those uh, improvements and those technologies come at a cost, and heretofore, those costs have not been included uh, in the process. So, And benchmark has said that they do have the ability to help our systems talk. Great. Well, I have a meeting with uh, that team tomorrow, and we'll make sure that uh, I put this item on our agenda, whether Fantastic. to address tomorrow or to speak to in the future. Thank you. No problem. Uh, seeing uh, no other comments in the in the chat, thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Ms. Armstrong. Um, Sergeant, can you take us to public comment, please? At this time, the public is welcome to make public comment regarding line item 10, the DPA budget. If you'd like to make public comment, please approach the podium or press star 3. And Vice President Carter Overstone, there is no public comment. Thank you. Next item, please.
Line item 11, public comment on all matters pertaining to item 13 below closed session, including public comment on item 12, vote whether to hold item 13 in closed session. If you would like to make public comment, please approach the podium or press star three. And there is no public comment. Line item 12, vote on whether to hold item 13 in closed session, including vote on whether to assert the attorney-client privilege with regards to item 13A, San Francisco Administrative Code section 67.10, action. Is there a motion? I'll make a motion to hold item 13 in closed session and assert attorney-client privilege with regards to item 13A. Second. Second. On the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Oberstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Oberstone is yes. You have six yeses. All right. We will go into closed session. TV, San Francisco Government Television.
call item number 14, please? Line item 14, vote to elect whether to disclose any or all discussion on item 12 held in closed session, including a vote on whether to assert the attorney-client privilege with regard to item 12A, San Francisco Administrative Code section 67.12A, action. Is there a motion not to disclose? Motion not to disclose and to assert attorney-client privilege. Second. Members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item 14, please approach the podium or press star 3. And there is no public comment. On the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter-Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter-Overstone is yes. You have six yeses. Light item 15, adjournment. <laughs> Interferes with calls. I'm glad we're the one call, so we knew the, the SSFPD phone line was working. So there was yeah. a